Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to episode 298 of the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I talked with astrologer Rob Bailey about revisiting the considerations before judgment in horary astrology. So this was meant to be a follow-up to episode 296 that I did with Sue Ward on the considerations before judgment last month. And I had done so much work uh, researching and preparing for the episode with Sue, and we covered a lot of ground in that episode, but I realized the next day that I still had so much to say that I decided to record a follow-up discussion with Rob uh, the very next day after I'd done the interview with Sue. So this was originally recorded as more of an impromptu discussion with Rob just to riff on and talk about some additional topics related to the considerations for a private podcast series called the Casual Astrology Podcast, which is available to subscribers through my page on Patreon. But uh, the discussion went so well, and I felt like it presented so much new information on the considerations that was valuable that I've decided to release it as a full episode of the Astrology Podcast as episode 298. So that being said, it was kind of a casual discussion, uh, despite being an interesting one, but just keep that in mind as you watch it in terms of who our original intended audience was and why it was so somewhat casual or impromptu. So with that introduction out of the way and without further ado, let's get started with the interview with Rob. Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Casual Astrology Podcast. Um, I'm not sure what episode number this is, but here in Denver, it's Thursday, March 18th, 2021, starting at 5.31 p.m. Uh, and yeah, I'm talking to Rob Bailey today, and we're going to be talking a little bit more about the considerations before judgment as, an, as a follow-up to the episode that I just recorded with Sue Ward yesterday, and we'll probably release in the next few days. Uh, so hey, Rob, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about this. Yeah, so um, I spent a lot of time over the past few weeks researching the considerations and rereading everything and collecting my thoughts, and then you and I talked about it a little bit, and you sent me a research paper you'd been doing where you'd been trying to trace some of the sources for the considerations. And it was really interesting seeing that because there were some Instances where we were already sort of in, in agreement, or or had read the same things, but then there are other instances where you'd find you'd gone deeper and found more connections than I was even aware of. Um, so I wanted to talk about that a little bit today, and um, yeah, just talk a little bit more about that episode and that topic because it was such a big topic that we packed a lot into that episode with Sue yesterday. But there were still more things that we could have gone into. So I just wanted to um, yeah, just discuss that more with somebody else who's done research in this area. Uh, today. So yeah, thanks for joining me. Um, how long you've been doing horary for a while, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I think I started practicing horary um in about say 2009 um, okay. or so. Um, and then on and off since then. I had a website for a little while, which I'm embarrassed about. I think it look it lingers somewhere on our, you know the archives of the internet, but I, I don't want okay. to tell anyone. What it, I don't want people looking it up. You're not going to tell of, me, okay. It's sort of um, my like, yeah, my rantings as like a young enthusiast of traditional astrology. Um, yeah, I think everyone we all have those. Thankfully, for for many of us that are like past a certain age, like a lot of those get stuck on like old websites like MySpace, which has since disappeared. Uh, and I, I kind of, I'm kind of <laughs> glad that I didn't grow up in the Twitter age as a young astrologer and having some of those things immortalized kind of permanently. Yeah, yeah, I'm. I'm. I think I also agree. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I started on Twitter when I was like, you know, in my thirties, my late thirties, and 
Right. Yeah, very cautious approach to <laughs> engaging with people, um, yeah. let's say, compared to my 20s. Um, yeah, so I started doing horror about 2009 and then practicing on and off since then. And just in the last few years, started to take it much more seriously and, and sort of approaching it really, you know, as a, as a professional, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. And so I launched my, my current website in uh, 2019. Um, and yeah, and just been taking a lot of questions and doing a lot of work uh, since then. What's your website URL again? Oh yeah. Uh, my website's, um, oldschoolastrology.com. Okay. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I so- remember you did a Hori uh, chart for Lisa once that actually turned out really well and you made a really good prediction with that. Um, I forget what the exact like configurations and what the question was, but I was impressed by that. Mm. Um, you don't happen to Thank have you. that. Do you, do you have I that question? Put- I can pull up the chart for it. Because um, we've, we've uh, used that, I think, publicly as an example already at some point in the podcast oh, recently, okay. so it, it wouldn't be like divulging something not okay, but I, I just remember it being a really interesting horror. Yeah. If 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 Lisa's okay with you know it being shared and stuff like that, um, I mean, I've got the chart up in my astrology software now, but um, okay. I can just talk, I can talk through it if you if you'd like if you prefer um, um, just quickly for the audience, but yeah. 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 Since it's already been shared publicly, I don't, yeah, I think it's okay. Uh, here we are. So here's the chart. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think, I think the, um, there was a few salient points. Like, I think, uh, Virgo rises. So Mercury signifies the person asking the question. Right. Um, and as what the ruler focused of the, on. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and so with, with a sixth, placed in the sixth house. Um, one concern was, um, you know, obviously work, work matters were, were a big concern with this, with this question. I think yeah, it was that's, also- that's literally, that's one of the first, like in primary things, it's the most impressive about it is just, it's literally a question about her job and her day job and the ruler of the ascendant is in the sixth house. And it's just literally like right there. That's what is being focused on. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I'm actually going to just pull up my notes very quickly for this one as well, to, just so I don't ramble too much, but- yeah, in the sixth, and I think there was also like s- some health concerns as well. I think I don't want to divulge too much, but I think health was also an issue um, f- that was sort of important for for Lisa in this matter, and 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 the Mercury being in the sixth. And I think the other thing that just leaps out was the combustion with the Sun um, being so close to the Sun, um, and the Sun signifying sort of the government in like a sort of a natural sense or like a universal sense. And I think. There were some concerns about some recent changes in legislation and things like that that were also impacting Lisa at the time. There was some sort of concern about, um, yeah, some support payments or something like that. I can't remember the exact detail. Right. Um, so it's just interesting how the chart kind of reflects the situation that the querent describes. Right. Um, and that usually what- is like a good sign that you're onto something here, you know. Yeah, it's like one of the principal features of horary, and that's something we talked about with Sue a lot yesterday. Was that the the chart should reflect the question, and if it does, or if it reflects the querent, then you know you've got a good horary chart or a good horary question, or that there's a genuine intention behind it, or something like that. As opposed to, it seems like especially with the early horary authors, there was more of a preoccupation with whether. The person had a genuine question, or whether it was like an appropriate question, or whether for Benati, like whether they were trying to like trick him or or pull something you know nefarious on him or something like that. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And even right back to the earliest horary texts that we have, there seems to be this uh, 
I guess you call it like an anxiety about that, you know, mm-hmm. um, this anxiety about is the, is this person coming to me with a genuine intent to ask a question or, or are they coming to me for some other reason and are they withholding their real reason from me? Right. And, um, yeah, you see that right for in, in, in Masha Allah, you see it in, in Seoul, you see it in, um, uh, yeah, all the sort of earliest texts. Umar talks about it as well, from what I can tell. And and and, um, yeah, I, I think the reason is is because the premise of horary depends upon the chart reflecting the question. You know, the question as stated, right? Uh, and you look for certain factors in the chart depending on what the querent tells you. You know, um, and and if they're sort of withholding so that the truth of their intention from you and telling you something else, well, then you're going to look at the chart wrong and you're going to look at the wrong thing and, you know, or, or it's just going to confuse the whole endeavor, you know? Um, yeah, like uh, you could get it, you could get it wrong or you could, and that could impact your reputation or something. You know, yeah. there's some of the considerations later, I think. One of the ones, at least in Lily's aphorisms, is about malefics being in the tenth, and maybe something about the question coming back to haunt you, or there being like bad for your reputation, or something like that. And yeah, you know that's a relevant consideration, especially as a professional astrologer, or if your reputation is based on your success or failure of making predictions. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think there's lots of reasons to be concerned, you know, as a horary astrologer about these issues, and some of them are ones that are still relevant today you know some are ones that were more important i think to astrologers working in the middle ages and in in in, in the uh renaissance you know um sort of specific to the way that they interacted with clients back then as opposed to the way we interact with clients today perhaps but you know some there are some common common issues that i think still sort of run through the whole tradition up until now that we're still kind of grappling with and trying to trying to figure out how to deal with um because I, I think there's a few different ways that a, a client can come to you and try and sort of, and, and mess up the question if you like or mess up the the endeavor by how they approach you whether that's through you know not knowing what they want to ask is sort of one possibility you know like not really having a clear idea of what they want to ask sort of coming out of curiosity or just to sort of for entertainment sake or they want to see what you can do kind of thing Right, like not having um, a serious pressing issue, which is one of the other early horary things that's a little bit, and that was the, one of the realizations I had in terms of a differentiation between the ancient horary tradition versus the modern one is I feel like there's a, a lot more um, tendency to accept like any type of horary question in modern times or, or even in traditional circles, like some traditional astrologers think that you can cast a horary for like anything. Even mm. something somewhat frivolous, whereas it seems like there was a real preoccupation in authors like Bonatti and even Lily to some extent about um, it needing to be like an important question that the person has like thought about for a while and is really serious to them to some extent, or and that maybe they've thought about for a twenty-four hour period even, or if not, that it's something like very pressing that came up that you know has serious impact on their life in some way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and those that that particular concern with making sure the question's important and that it's asked in earnest is um, something that again is goes right back to the earliest sources, you know. Um, and I think it's Lily's an interesting case in, with that particular issue. I think it, what you said is true. There's a few po- points to unpick there. I think it's true that there's this sort of debate, I suppose, in in the community about 
whether you can take any question and what question and you know how far can you go in terms of what questions you'll accept and things like that. I mean, do you um, think there is a debate? Because I don't know. It seems like so many of the traditional. I've been surprised at how many of the traditional astrologers have been. I think a lot of them follow surprisingly Frawley's line, where Frawley is like astrology doesn't just stop working; it works all the time, and whatever chart you cast is going to work no matter what. Almost, it seems like my impression is that that is his position fundamentally, and that other people have sort of adopted a similar view, which is surprising to me because I, when I started studying Hori early on, I was reading like Masha Allah and. Banati, and they were just very clear that it has to be like a super important thing, and that Hori charts themselves were somewhat unique because of the the pressing nature of the question, hmm. and that's what allowed them to have that power to to accurately both depict the question as well as its outcome. Is that there was something unique about that moment instead of it just being something, you know, somewhat in passing. But but you feel like there's more debate about that, definitely still. I think so. Yeah, like I'll, I'll sort of explain. I'll answer that in, in in this way if I can. So, in summary, the medieval books all say you should have an important question and that you shouldn't ask frivolous questions. They pretty much all agree with that, you know. Mm-hmm. And Lily kind of reports that faithfully in 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 his book um, when he's sort of talking about these issues. But then what you see in 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 his charts and what he actually does, and this is often the case with Lily, is he says one thing and then does another, you know. Mm. Um, he he talks about do, doing things with horary that we might consider pretty frivolous. Like in one section of the book, he says when he's talking about lost objects, you know, um, he says that he would sometimes get one of his servants to hide things around the house, and then he would cast charts and find them, like for fun. And he even said he uses some sort of archaic terminology, but he says, "But I did this for fun, you know, like to, to sort of in- for entertain myself." Okay. Um, and so I don't know whether that's important or not. You know, I don't know how important that is um, or how that's like, funny so, so you can, you know. I didn't know about that piece. I knew about like the missing fish horary, and that's usually cited as more of an example of like a not serious question somehow, but that you could almost argue that it was perhaps. Um, and so I thought there, I thought that was the reason how, why he had opened up like a window into more. Lacks like use of horary, but that's funny if there's this other thing about like just finding missing objects. Yeah, he just sort of seems to be testing it. Like, for, I think as astrologers do, you know, you, you do this, especially when you're new to doing horary, I think early on, you, you, you do things like that. You just sort of ask any old question just to see if it works, kind of thing. Um, sure. So it's it's one of those moments where he seems very human, like the, just the idea of him getting his servant to like hide his gloves and then cast a chart and like, oh, I found them. They'll sort of giggle. I don't know. Sorry, I'm bumping the table. Um, but um, uh, I, I, that demonstrates that he was at least willing to sometimes, you know, experiment and, and take charts that weren't always like the most important. Um, but I think, generally speaking, that is the traditional stance: is that the chart needs to be about something important. Frawley's Frawley does sort of come out very strongly in his book on horary, um, horary textbook, saying that yeah, every chart is valid, and he gives that as above, so below kind of justification. That you know that it should be operating twenty four seven, and that and that there's no chart. You know, if the question is asked right, you know, earnestly, and that it's you know they got the chart right, that it should come out accurately. And then I think that it, there is a debate, I suppose, because I, I think what you see in some other books like um, Martial Art of Horary by um, Lee Layman is a more traditional approach, like the you know sort of in line with the old the old books that say you know don't take every question and. 
be careful about what people are asking you and you and, know and in the yeah. interest of full disclosure i should say that was it's like that in mashallah's on reception and banati's um considerations translated by henry coley those are my first three horary books so mm. i guess i have been influenced in that more seriously by lee and some of her the things that she says in terms of some of those restrictions for horary or some of the guidelines of in terms of best practice tra- practices compared to i don't know if i had studied with frawley or something like that primarily yeah yeah and that's perhaps my perspective might differ from yours because i sort of started out with the frawley stuff okay I guess mm-hmm. that was my introduction to horror was his work plus just reading a lot of William Lilly. Mm. Um, well, that's interesting then because then that would have really colored your perception of the considerations going into it because that was yeah. another thing that he has a very yeah. strong and very um, particular and unique position on, which I uh-huh. <laughs> actually found uh, very hon- honestly like very obnoxious to hear a lot of his students like repeating this this yeah. position that the considerations were just invented in order to allow astrologers to get out of asking answering questions that they didn't want to answer yeah. and that was his like answer to the issue of there are these considerations but then lily still answers charts uh, that contain the considerations so what does that mean and different students of olivia's uh, came to different conclusions but he came to that that was his conclusion that he came to about that yeah that's right Yes, and I think it's fair to say that Lily. So Frawley really influenced me early on, and I was sort of ascribed to a lot of his views. I was one. Of, I was sort of like a a, a Frawleyite, I guess. Okay, um, were you one I've of those people of, like saying that on forums in like the two thousand ten timeframe? Then that considerations were invented by Bernardi to get out of answering questions. Again, probably don't look probably. up that website that okay. I mentioned earlier. <laughs> Okay, there's like a lingers somewhere. Ten page, just like screed about people using the considerations before judgment or something like that. Oh goodness, yeah. I I think it's fair to say that Frawley's position is pretty extreme, and um, like many things. I mean, I, I the thing is, I, I have a lot of respect for Frawley. I must say that, and like, I, right. In some ways, he really influences my my whole approach and the way I, I the way I like to write and talk about astrology. Like his mm-hmm. wit and his sort of like kind of I don't know what you call it. Like, yeah, the way he's the way he uses language and stuff. It's really yeah, appealing I mean, to he's me. He's a really amazing writer. That's yeah. What that's why those books became so popular, especially the first, uh, the first one, like what the pink one and the green one. The first, his first, I guess those are his first two books, right? Those became super popular mm-hmm. in like the early to mid two thousands. And I just remember this wave of people being really super interested in his work because he was such a good writer and because he was so yeah. compelling. Not just in what he was saying, but in the way that he conveyed his thoughts in like an interesting and engaging fashion. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And his, yeah, I, I, and I think that's probably what I would say. I, I still take from him is that that way of writing. I, I try to emulate that a little bit in how I write and stuff. Like that. But anyway, um, when when it comes to the considerations, though, I think um, his take on it is what he says is that they're all not really real and they're just there to kind of be an excuse so that you don't have to read a chart if it's an awkward question or if answering it would get you in trouble somehow or something like that you know um okay i think and i think that's not the whole truth i think there's uh, maybe a little bit of that there, there might be an inkling of truth to that like i think you could use you could probably use them in that way if you wanted to let's say if you were an medieval astrologer you could probably say look i don't want to answer this question because the moon's void of course sorry mm. um 
to get you out of a question that might get your head chopped off if you know or something like that if you get it wrong um, right or if you <laughs> see something i guess the i guess the question is like whether it whether the the considerations mean anything symbolically and i guess that was always my main objection to that is i took them to be passed along because at least at some point they were genuine things that somebody thought were symbolically significant enough to record yeah. and therefore telling you something that's relevant about the question and i guess it's just a matter of i always took frawley's interpretation to mean they have no symbolic significance at all whatsoever and therefore yeah. we shouldn't pay attention to them versus they have symbolic significance um but if and and that in some instances maybe if you did see one and you did ascribe significance to that you might want to not take the questioner back out of it or get out of it or what have you however you want to frame that but it's more not because it's not telling you something it's because it is saying something that's relevant yeah that's right i i i think i think Frawley assumes that we're using them cynically and that we're not actually earnest that we don't actually mean it when we're looking at a chart and saying oh well, that's concerning for me I, I I think that I think that's not tr not entirely true or not true really. Like I I'd say that his approach to having read the books and having really looked closely at the texts and gone you know really thought about it, I think there is a real concern about being deluded by a querent, and there is a and there are real attempts made, especially later in the tradition, to try and find ways to tell if someone is trying to deceive you or trick you or test you. Um, by looking at the chart and looking for things in the chart that can help you to sort of tell if they're if they're up to no good like that. So I think he's he's wrong to say that they're that they're they weren't real rules that were used earnestly by people in the past. I think that's false. Um, I, but I will say that what that his proposition that you could use them to avoid taking questions is like yeah, you, of course you could do that if you wanted to. But I don't think that's the whole story. Um, the other, th the last point he makes is that the rule about late rising signs or late or early degrees rising. Um, he makes this point that that might just be because of inaccurate timekeeping in the old, in in, in the um, you know, old days. That you might, it might be difficult to know, particularly you know, if if the sun's like around the, the mid heaven, if it's like middle of the day, it might be hard to know what time it is actually. Um, if you're just looking at the shadow or something, um, and so in that case. You know, if you get a late degree rising or early degree rising, you might have some some anxiety about what the right rising sign is. Similar to if you cast someone's birth chart and and you get like an early or late degree rising and you panic and need to rectify their birth chart. You know, especially if it's a rounded time, it's that same issue of not knowing for sure what the ascendant is. Um, so he 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 postulates that that rule about the early or late rising sign might be just some concern about timekeeping, and that might be true. Um, and I think Culpepper in one of Nicholas Culpepper, who was a contemporary of William Lilly, who wrote, also wrote on Horary, mentions this when, when he reports this rule from Bonatti about the early or late rising degree, meaning potentially that the chart is, you know, not good or, you know, dangerous to read or something like that. Um, right. You, you sent that to me here. I'll share it on the screen while you're yeah, talking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting because he, that's that's the view that, that that Frawley expresses, reported by by Culpepper. He says here. So this is the rule from Bernardi. Basically, this is the source for this rule is Bernardi's um, book on questions, or I think it's his aphorism, his seventh aphorism. Actually, he says, "Pass no judgment upon a figure when either the first or later degrees of a sign ascend, for few de 
or for a few degrees ascend, the question is not as then ready for judgment. But if the later ascend, the time is flipped or slipped. Sorry, the time is slipped. Sorry, those old um, those <laughs> old has got me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The time is slipped, and the querent hath been tampering with some other artist about it. So ask, he's already asked someone else about this this uh, question, and so you shouldn't take the question. Right. But then over here in the sort of the margin or this little side note, he says, "I suppose the true reason of this is fear of mistaking the significators." So he reports faithfully the tradition from Bernardi, but then he also, in a side note, says, well, personally, I wonder whether this is actually more about not knowing what the right rising sign is. So even in Lily's time, there was some skepticism about at least that particular rule and, and, and what it what it meant. Um, so, you know, there are different reasons why you might discard a chart. One of them might be that that you're just not sure what the rising sign is, you know. Um, yeah, which which is a valid. I mean, if it was a calculation issue, that would be a valid issue because if, especially in in Hori in particular, if you know the ascendant is at zero zero one degrees, then uh, if it was actually in the previous sign, then your ruler of the ascendant, and especially in a whole sign, all of the other house rulerships are are wrong or could be wrong. So that would be something you'd have to be concerned about as a as a warning or a potential issue. Um, if you have if you cast the chart for that time and it comes up with that position yeah yeah that's right and you know i've i've been in that position myself where i cast a chart with 29 degrees and 57 minutes on the ascendant once and for a horary chart and i was like do i even answer this you know so yeah yeah um, so it's like that is definitely a legitimate concern i mean but on the other hand then if it's like you know two or three degrees of the sign it's not that far off especially if it's a sign of of slow ascension, then um, I think it is still there. Still, can be something symbolically relevant about that if it is early. And I do feel like I've seen charts with early and late rising ascendants where either there's something about the question that's premature and they're asking too soon, or alternatively, there's something that's already concluded and either they they um, don't acknowledge it or they don't realize it that the matter is already done and and they're just not sort of clued in on it yet. Yeah, and that's fair. I think that's fair. And I think you're using that rising degree technique and you know and saying that it's symbolically relevant or significant is 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 perfectly fine approach. Like it's it's a it's it there in the tradition. It's it's very old. It goes back to at least Bonardi as far as we can tell, maybe maybe older. Um so I think that's it's fair, it's a fair technique to use. And I, I I make this point not to sort of cast doubt on on the utility of this, but just to sort of talk just so we can flesh out some of the debates that are going on about the considerations both at the moment in the community, sort of between like the Frawley camp and kind of like the Lee Lehman or like sort of I don't know, like the STA kind of camp, I suppose you'd say, um, about the utility of the considerations. But also there's this sort of historical stuff with Nick Culpepper casting some doubt on that particular consideration at least so i don't Do you know have any idea a- what the broader what the sta because I've, I've realized that in the past two years different things have changed because mm. it's like for example lee lehman on her definition of the void of course moon like eight years ago was keeping and staying with the modern definition of void of course moon and that was true even like a few years ago she published an advanced hori workbook and mentioned things that had changed since the martial art of horary astrology and didn't mention this but then evidently sometime in the past 3 to 4 years has now adopted Sue Ward's interpretation of Lily and says that that's what Lily was doing based on the charts 
which puts her more in line with the STA people. Do you happen to know what the STA people, what their position is on the considerations? Because I, I have no idea. I'm not sure. I, I yeah, I'm, I'm perhaps generalizing by assuming that that Lee's stance is in line with the SDAs in some way. You know, that might that might be an overgeneralization, I suppose. Um, mm. I, I don't actually know exactly what they're teaching at the moment. Um, I, I presume that I have to presume that it's fairly traditional and that it, it that the considerations are valuable and that they're worth at least learning and you know looking at and 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 seeing you know so trying out for yourself i i have to assume that i'm not actually sure though okay uh, what what their stance is at the moment on that yeah sure that's fine i was just curious cuz i i have no idea so i know like frawley's position i know lee's position from her book but there's other mm. i realize sometimes sometimes i focus so much on just the the primary sources and what the primary sources say that i often don't know what the contemporary practitioners say, and sometimes I'm caught off guard by contemporary debates that I didn't know existed. So, yeah. reception sometimes reception and whether reception with malefics is a debate that I didn't know existed until several years back, and and there's other little things like that where sometimes there's modern interpretations that I wouldn't have come to myself from reading the text, the primary sources on my own, and suddenly. There's different interpretations of them that I, I didn't know existed. Yeah, look, that's that's fair, and I I think horary in particular, perhaps because of the nature of it, might be an area where you get a lot more debate and a lot more disagreement, because there's this sort of intense need to have a definitive answer on certain topics, you know, and like to sort of say, well, this is the right way to do it, because otherwise you you get this confusion or you get this sort of divergence of different approaches and. We're trying to be very sort of concrete and specific in horary, so it's it's. I think it's an area where you do get a lot of disagreement and debate, especially when we're we're reading translations of old books where where the wording really matters. Right. Um. There's that you, you tend to get this. Uh, uh, it, it seems to be an area where people are bickering a lot. Let's say in in horary, so it's hard to keep up. I I also find it hard to keep up myself sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's why sometimes I just ask just to be clued in, just in case, so I do know. Um. Mm. So one of the things that was interesting, you you and I both, I had counted up the considerations in Lily, um, just like went through and counted them up, and I came up with twelve. And when I read your um paper, you had also come to twelve. I've seen different people report different things, but I thought that was interesting that we basically came to the same conclusion of the number of those in his initial introduction of them. Um, but one of the things I thought was interesting is that he later in the seventh house questions introduces another set of aphorisms, and there he both reiterates some of the um, considerations, but he also adds some potentially some new ones that are like extensions of some of the previous ones. And not all of those are necessarily considerations per se, but I thought it was interesting because you know Lily got. Um, some of these considerations, the very first ones from Bonatti, and they come from, I guess, partially from Bonatti's own aphorisms or considerations. And one of the things I realized later is that the initial considerations, while they are like considerations before judgment, before horary, they're also just kind of um, aphorisms. They're just um, there's a little bit of a, a lack of. Um, clear boundary, and there's a little bit of interchangeability between considerations and aphorisms to some extent. And even though in the modern Hori tradition in the mid 20th century, the considerations evolved to have this special, separate like place as like these 
scary warnings that you're supposed to reject charts with if they show up. Um, I, I I kind of wonder if they're just what the role is or what the exchange is with the relationship is with just being aphorisms that you're supposed to like take into account. And if people had understood that, then you would have a much better understanding of the level of importance you're supposed to place on these rules. That's right. Yes. Yes. I was thinking that myself. That that seventh house part of, of Lily actually that's very relevant. I was thinking about it last night. Like, oh, there's also stuff there too. Um, right. Here, let me yes. share that so you can yeah. put it up on the screen. It's worth having a look at. Um, so you know, there he mentions that the uh, the rule about the uh, the chart being radical, um, which is the comparing the rising sign with the the triplicity. Sorry, the um the rising sign with the Lord of the Hour. Mm-hmm. Um, so and then, then there's first, also the first degrees or later degrees. Yeah. So these are the, these are the ones from Bonardi, and they they also appear in in considerations earlier in the in the book. Yeah. Right. And then, and then so there's this. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. The, this third one. This is the one that I think is like an extension of some of the like first house Saturn, seventh house Saturn things that he's pointing out in the initial considerations. And this one he puts it in the tenth, and he says the position of Saturn or Mars in the tenth, and the peregrine or unfortunate or the south node in that house. The artist hardly gets credit for the question. Mm. Yeah, and, that, and that's really interesting thinking about like the the result of the question or the reputation of the astrologer um, subsequent to answering the question or what have you being described in the question itself, or at least the astrologer's intertwining with the question being a relevant thing that the astrologer might want to know about ahead of time. Yeah, that's right. It's another way of looking at that, sort of inserting the astrologer into the chart in a way and saying, well, this is me and this is my interests in the, in this outcome as well, you know? Right. And it also reminds me a little bit of the old Dorothean thing of putting, you know, first is, is me, so first is the querent, seventh is sort of the other subject in the question. Mm. Then the tenth and the fourth is sort of the outcome and the tenth is, is sort of the business itself, you know? And perhaps right. if there's afflictions in the tenth, it sort of shows, you know, that there's it's not going to go well, something like that, you know, something vague like that. But yeah, I think it also might just be to do with the tenth's reputation as well, and 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 that concept of, well, this, if this is my um, me in the public, my public kind of status, you know, then having Saturn and Mars there might not, you know, might affect my public status in a in, in a negative way. Right. Um, so so one of the things about that though that then raised a question for me was because um, we have the initial. You know they they're labeled as considerations as twelve from the end of book one, mm. but then it's like is if that is that a consideration and therefore do we have to expand them? Yes. Do we have to say that there's more than twelve considerations really because some of these should be included? Although the issue is I don't think you would necessarily include all of these in his subsequent aphorisms, so it gets a little tricky. Yeah, that's right. I think that's I think that's true, and this, this is a good point actually as well is that. The the considerations being sort of put, you know as they as they are sort of set out earlier in the text in Lily's book do take on a sort of a life of their own in the modern horror sort of tradition and perhaps one that Lily didn't necessarily intend them to sort of take on you know I'd, right like we, we we treat them as this sort of checklist almost you know and you sort of go through it and and if any of them are there then you're supposed to throw the chart in the bin or something extreme like that uh, I don't know whether he really intended them to be. Used in this way, or sort of canonized, if you like, in 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 this way, um, and sort of revered in in the way that people revere them now. They may have just been 
a set of of sort of things to look at, you know, and then and he also includes some later in this in that cha- part of the seventh on, on on the seventh house where he includes some more aphorisms there. And I think you're right; they do take they have an aphoristic kind of nature to them. Um, they're kind of pithy and and rounded and you know self contained. Um, yeah, one of the things I've been realizing that because I found some later aphorisms that Lily did. So he had Coley or or whoever translated Bonatti's you know aphorisms as the astrologer's guide, and that was published as a separate publication. But then I found um, Sue Ward sent me uh, to a link on where the the Tradition Journal has been relaunched and their website has been relaunched, which I didn't know about by. Um, by Luis and Helena Avalar, uh, Helena Avalar and Luis Ribeiro, they relaunched the tradition website. But it has a bunch of these texts that they had done that are really amazing that um, are include a bunch of aphorisms, um, some of which are from Lily and Lily's later career that I didn't know about. Um, here, let me see if I can share it. So it's at traditionjournal.com. And oh, wow. Yeah, it's got a lot of stuff, especially this. I'd been looking for this for a while because I remembered it, but then their website's been offline for years. But the life of Lily, it's a nice annotated Lily's autobiography by Sue Ward. Um, so here it is, Choice Astrological Aphorisms by William Lilly. And I was like, what is this? And opened it up, and it's a whole other sort of book of aphorisms. Then she says it's extracted from Merlinus Angelicus by William Lilly, London, 1676. And I spent like a day, well, a few hours like earlier today looking for this and realized it wasn't a book. It was just one of his almanacs. But yes. he, yeah. so he pub he published additional lists of like aphorisms in some of his later almanacs. And this may not have been the only year that he did this, but he actually may have done this in other years as well. Which makes me realize that he just really liked aphorisms. Like aphorisms were kind of William Lilly's thing, and he was kind of into them, and that's what the considerations were. And it's an early example of that, of him giving you a list of early horary aphorisms right before he introduces horary astrology. But then, yeah, like you said, they kind of got canonized as this like thing that took on a life of its own. Yeah, that's right. And like so I, I think that's absolutely right, Chris. I think what you see, and, and we can get into this later perhaps but some of the things in the in the list of considerations at the you know the, the the main one the canon the canonized set do seem to be things that were originally in aphorisms or in sets of instructions for you know other other things you're supposed to do in in horary and kind of found their way into the into the considerations list there by lily and and then become sort of seen as things that you have to look at before you're you read a chart when originally they may have not been intended for this very specific purpose. There might have been more general statements of things to look out for when you're doing horary, you know, and then, and then they become used in this. I think what I'm trying to get at is that because they appear in this list called considerations before judgment and because people, you know, have reading Lily very closely at the moment and they have for the last 30, 40 years since the traditional revival, they, I think sometimes overanalyze things or overread things or sort of take things to this height and t- treat them in this way that they may not necessarily have necessarily have intended to be originally and and so the stuff he says about you know well okay if the ascendant if this ruler of the ascendant is like retrograde or if it's c- combust or something like you know that's the question is not going to work out very well mm-hmm. well that's 
you could you can you, you know and and then because it's in the considerations poor judgment part of the book people are looking at that going well before i read this chart i have to look at the ascendant ruler before i start reading it and see if it's messed up you know retrograde or combust or something and if it is then i i should probably think about whether i want to read the chart or not maybe what that rule is saying is just when you're reading charts generally if the ruler of the ascendant's combustible that's going to be hard for the it's going to be hard to like make something of that like if, if even if it's in an applying aspect with the the planet you want mm. the fact that it's combust or retrograde or something might mean that it doesn't actually produce the outcome and and so it's it's more of a general horary rule that's then being used in the considerations so i think you're right that that the, some of this stuff might be more general in nature and then it becomes sort of interpreted by people as being really important to look at before you read a chart that's a particular context of before you read the chart you know um yeah and and also of calling it like a consideration as opposed to an aphorism because i think if it was fra- if you understood it as an aphorism you know to take that as like a possible interpretive principle that may be relevant as a useful mimetic tool in some instances for interpreting certain combinations or certain placements but that it's not supposed to be taken as a Sort of axiomatic. Um, this will always happen every time, and is not to be taken into account outside of like um, consi- other mitigating considerations that might change the picture a little bit. But when you call it a consideration before judgment or a consideration, and also with some of the 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 language that Lily himself used by referring to like warnings and other things in the initial considerations before judgment, I think that may have. Um, Given put put more of a spin on it that gave later readers maybe an unintended, somewhat un, unintended um, emphasis of of avoiding these things at all costs, rather than just taking into account as a potential outcome. That's right. That's right. And not to sort of repeat ground that you've already gone over with Sue, but Sue Ward's work demonstrates that Lily was not using these things axiomatically, and he was still taking charts that sometimes had these features in them for different reasons and he was still factoring them in and perhaps steering away from certain charts and steering more towards others and things like that but he was not using them sort of in this very like hard and fast or black and white kind of way he was using them more as things to be mindful of and and i think that's important to to keep in mind as well is that yes these things perhaps because we are so focused on texts and we're and we're all very interested in reading them carefully and understanding them perhaps we some side effects of that might be that we we take things to, to to be more important or more 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 of a hard and fast rule than they really were yeah um, when, once something gets committed to print and it's and it's um said by somebody who's in viewed as an authority or an, in an authoritative position the older that gets like the more emphasis is given and more um not respect or admiration but the more that's treated as a as a as a major consideration. It becomes entrenched as like a foundational part of the tradition, and sometimes blown out of all proportion relative to what even what the author intended in terms of their level of of emphasis on that. That's something that I actually am very nervous about constantly with the podcast is like making some blow off comment, and then uh, if that becomes like the statement that uh, that astrologers are repeating about that one thing. Um, you know about something like whole sign houses or zodiac releasing or something like that, or what that would look like on a long timeline of like a hundred years from now. If somebody's going to be like quoting some 
joke that I made on the podcast that was taken <laughs> seriously or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a concern, you know, and I think I mean it 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 seems to happen a lot in the tradition over time. I think and I want to be careful here because I I I think the considerations have value, you know. I'm yeah, you know no, in I saying do. this and in saying these things about you know, so sort of saying well they shouldn't be used axiomatically and they shouldn't, you know, I think there's still value there and you know there's a reason for them to be there but yes just to clarify yeah. i wasn't rejecting them in that sense or saying mm. that they, they don't have value or i didn't mean to downplay them because i actually think i give them more value than many practitioners might and, and I, that's one of the things i appreciated about sue's work um is showing that they were giving relevant information in lily's hori charts oftentimes and they were being taken into account, and many of them, or some of them at least, I have found useful, like that earlier late degree rising and describing certain Hori questions and being useful information. I guess um, I just wasn't necessarily taking them as, like when I think of an aphorism, I think of something that's conditionally true or maybe true, but maybe not always 100% of the time. Mm. Yeah, that's right. It's sort of something to keep in mind, and you know, right. you look at the chart, and if it's there, you you know, you note it, kind of thing. I think that's what's sort of intended with some of these some of these considerations is that similar kind of approach of just memorizing it and then noting it when you see it. I love you that know. you you keep using this phrase, um, something to keep in mind, and that's the perfect phrase because mm. that's exactly what a consideration is, and that's probably <laughs> how he, how he intended it. But mm. then it later became you know the strictures or. Uh, I forget what the other word was that Ivy Goldstein Jacobson used, the warnings or something like that, mm. um, of something that that is more sort of meant to be like spooky or scary or something like that. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's safe to say that they, the way that they've been used more recently has perhaps been more strict or more dogmatic than perhaps they were in the past. You know, um, and yeah, they perhaps that's what. How I'd summarize my view on that. Um, so uh, it looks like Ivy, Ivy Goldstein Jacobson called them cautions, and then it was Barbara Waters in like 1973 that called them strictures. Strictures. That's a very strong word, isn't it? Stricture. Yeah. It um, has the I like had to I pulled up a dictionary to like a, an exact definition of uh, stricture, and it was saying something like um, something that closely restrains or limits a restriction or moral strictures. Mm. Yeah. Yes. So that's like a tight restraint. That so that sounds like sort of a rule that if you break it, like you know, woe betide you. You know. Um, right. Uh, yeah. And I think that that's sort of the way that some people I think do approach these considerations these days is to sort of, you know, I'm thinking about my own teacher, Christopher Warnock, who teaches primarily in the sort of Renaissance William Lilly style of of horror. Um, and his approach to the considerations has changed over time. He initially would always note when the chart was radical or not, using the the Bonatti sort of ascendant and planetary hour um, method. Um, but then he would always proceed to read the chart anyway. And then over time, he decided that he would just stop bothering to note it. He said, "Well, if I'm reading the chart anyway, well, why am I bothering to note it?" You know. He he, he thought that it perhaps helped him to be more confident with the chart. Like if he saw that it lined up, he would. Mm, be more confident in making statements, concrete statements about what he what he thought that the chart indicated. Whereas if it was not there, he might be more cautious, more qualifying with what he would say. 
But I think the fact that he took charts anyway sort of over time made him wonder whether it was worth the time and effort of checking that. You just get on with reading the chart. And <laughs> um, so that's an example just of how people have sometimes been strict about it and you know sort of changed their views about it. These things evolve and change, I think, and they'll probably continue to. There'll be debates back and forth in the contemporary community about how to use these things and how much value they have. Um, I've certainly ended up more on the scale of mm, not using them very much. Um, uh, and that's mainly mainly because I'm so focused on the, the, the early horror tradition in particular. And I've kind of been less interested in the later tradition, like the William Lilly and, and tradition. I've just become very focused on the Islamic texts and look and trying to understand what they they do and because they don't have the same kinds of considerations that you see in Lily and Bernardi it's just sort of not been something that I've been focusing on a lot yeah personally I but um, definitely focused on that tradition of Masha'Allah and then especially when Ben's translation of Saul came out in 2008 as forming the basis and foundation of my horary practice and it's only recently that I've become you know, in the past couple of years, that I've become much more interested in what was going on in the Renaissance tradition, and kind of fascinated by some of this different stuff because I'm impressed by the extent to which Lily actually did go back and read so many sources and then synthesized them in Christian astrology, and what his synthesis, what his unique synthesis was of the tradition from his vantage point in the 17th century, um, is kind of interesting in different ways. But it but it's something that's relatively new to me. Yeah, yeah. I um, I, I sort of came with the opposite. It's interesting to think about because I started out sort of from the other end, looking at Renaissance horary and being really interested in Lily and reading Frawley and learning and learning a lot from Christopher Warnock about Renaissance astrology. And, and, and I then clarify, later, it's like I did read Lily earlier. I did have Christian astrology. I, I got lucky and picked up the Acela edition in a bookstore in Seattle in like two thousand seven. Uh, which I'm still surprised that I have because it seems to be the best edition of Lily that there is, and it's very hard to find. Um, Jealous. So I, I, I had it's like I'd read that and read especially the first couple of books of Lily, but was focused so much on writing my book on Hellenistic astrology for ten years that I didn't go that far outside of the Hellenistic tradition just so I could finish writing that book. Um, but since it's been out over the past years, it's been nice to now get into some of these other later traditions. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I sort of started with Lily, and now I'm reading like Mashallah and Soul really closely. So it's okay. It's funny, sort of different trajectory, but yeah, um, yeah. I I like that. One of the things um, Sue mentioned yesterday that I didn't know and, and was a surprise to me was she said that, and maybe you can inform me on this if you know any ba additional background, but that there was Christian astrology it was published in in 1647 by Lily, and then. I thought there was a second edition that was published like a decade or like 12 years later, but she said that that was actually a, a pirated edition where somebody had gotten a hold of the like printing the press plates for the first edition and then they had, they had done like an unauthorized second edition or something. Had you heard about this or I, I want to know more about this. I'm suddenly fascinated. No, that sounds really interesting. I I I'd assumed like you that the, uh, the later edition from 50, 1659 or whatever was was authorized and sort of I didn't know that there was this potential for it to be this uh, black market lily. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, I thought, and in our notes in the episode I did with Nina on lily and Christian astrology, we just noted it as like a very slightly updated 
or corrected edition, which is what I thought it was, but she was saying something else. So there's still lots of like really interesting stories and things like that. There's also lots of interesting things about this point in the tradition in terms of the interaction between the different astrologers and the rivalries that are much more well documented and fleshed out, which is very interesting and sort of novel compared to, you know, we know a little bit, we know a lot less about the medieval astrologers and who they were interacting with. And then we know even way more or less about the Hellenistic astrologers and who they were interacting with and whether even though Valens and Ptolemy lived in the same city, possibly in Alexandria in roughly the same time frame, we have no idea if they interacted or were buddies or hated each other or what. But with Lily and some of those people, you have much more worked out uh, almost like lineages and genealogies and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Like it it's I've been reflecting on that myself where in the early medieval tradition that I'm focused on, Abu Mashar is kind of like the first Abu Masha, sorry, I should pronounce his name right. Abu Masha, he's, he's the first one who really we have much biographical details and tidbits about and some interesting like anecdotes about his life, which is really nice to sort of round out this personality because for Sol, for, you know, Mashallah, we don't have much about them at all, who they were, what they were like as people and things like that. We know a little bit about Al-Kindi, like apparently he was really stingy with money, like some little funny details like that. Um, right. But um, yeah, it's it's much. It really rounds out the, the the figures to sort of see. You really get to meet them in in the Renaissance period. I think in in their work, but also just from the anecdotes and stories that are told about them, the sort of collect around them as well. Right. Um, which you just don't get, unfortunately, with the older authors. So it's it's always a nice reference. Like reading William Lilly's biography, his autobiography. Sorry, is really interesting to see the characters, the colorful characters that that also practiced astrology. At, you know, at, at the time he was just getting started, right? Yeah, and his like his like wooing of his his wife that he like met, and um, like the way that he describes that and and different things like that is really funny. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of interesting. There's much more like the personality because even though this is true of ancient astrologers and like Valens, that's one of the things that I love about Valens is he'll have these like personal digressions occasionally, which makes you realize this is actually some just some guy that's living in the um, you know, second century and, and doing astrology at that time. And there's something relatable about it. Um, you know, in the Renaissance period, having that fleshed out more makes you realize that even though this is 400 years old, that people are still very much the same and many of the same dynamics are still in play in terms of human interactions. And that's why astrology as a system can still work because there's something about the core system that does describe you know human life accurately and is still relevant to us today mm, yeah that's really true yeah that's what makes it so relatable and some I love those moments where you're reading someone's old an old textbook and some line or something just rings true to you you know like and you just you think ah these they're they're grappling with the same issues that I am in my in my practice, you know. Um, and that's sort of to bring it back to the considerations. I think there are definitely been moments like that where I've been looking at the the old texts and what they have to say about things to be mindful of before you cast a chart or when you're looking at a chart, you know. And um, some of the concerns they have are the same concerns I have, like uh, you know, make sure that it's the right time. Like daylight savings time, I think is changing. I think it just changed recently in America. Yeah. Um, and and that's can really befuddle horary astrologers if you don't remember to set the the software or whatever to 
change to daylight savings to not daylight savings. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah. Well, and that would be an instance where sometimes that can happen, um, and you might not see it in the consideration, but for the actual chart, it might be there of you know Saturn in the seventh house and the astrologers somehow making a mistake or there being something wrong with the astrologer's judgment, and sometimes it can be something you know like that that you, you're looking at the wrong chart or something. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, it can be like it can be just just that literal, I think. And like, yeah, the transit. That's another thing is that the transits can become enshrined in the chart. So yeah, there's a, a Saturn in seventh house going on, and then you cast the chart, and now you're that you you are sort of inhabiting the role of that that seventh house with Saturn, you know, messing it up. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, uh, so Sorry, that, I mean, I that's really it. crucial. Just the idea of the consultation chart and the idea, especially, I think, in the early Hori tradition, where you have some of those rules from Masha Allah and then that are repeated in some of the later astrologers. I think in Banati about not asking your own questions. Mm -hmm. Then most Hori practice then would have always involved an exchange of a question between a querent and the astrologers. So that's like. It sets up a framework where that that exchange framework is always assumed, and therefore some of these um, rules that always assume that the astrologer is receiving the question as the seventh house party, and that it's almost partially like an extension of the consultation chart in some way, yeah. um, makes sense in that context. Like why they're talking about Saturn in the first house and the there being a problem with the querent or Saturn in the seventh house and there being a problem with you, the astrologer, or you know, Saturn in the tenth house, and something about the outcome or the um, result of the interaction between the two of you resulting in something that's problematic for for one or both of you. Yeah, that really, you know, what that makes a lot of sense. I think that really explains actually the rules that you see in Lily about the first and seventh house afflictions to those houses being important in the uh, you know for as a consideration before judgment, and why those those rules you know do actually also appear in the earlier. Horary texts like um, in the Centiloquium and in um, Sol, there are these lines about you know just be careful that the ascendant, if the ascendant rule is afflicted, and be careful if the seventh rule is afflicted, um, because you know if you think about it, the 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 consultation is a kind of a contractual interaction. It's between two people, mm -hmm. and so when you're doing an electional chart using Dorotheus for a sale or an interaction or exchange of money. Well, the first house is you, and the seventh house is the other party in that in that interaction in that sale, and so in you know in that exchange of goods and services. And so that's probably where that first and seventh house sort of those those afflictions become really important in the horary question because you're sitting down with someone and they're across from you at a table or something like that, and and. Right. That's the context in which horary was was originally practiced. These days we do it by email and Zoom and things like that. But originally, you would sit across from someone, mm -hmm. and so yeah, that 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 absolutely I think is the is the conceptual sort of sort of underpinning of of why those those afflictions to the first and seventh houses are important to look at when you're doing a horary. Yeah. So let's look at some of those considerations. So this is later in the list, but. Um, one of the later ones is Lily says, You must also be wary when in any question propounded you find the cusp of the seventh house afflicted or the lord of that house retrograde or Im impeded, and the matter and the matter at that time not concerning the seventh house, but belonging to any other house. It's an argument that the judgment of the astrologer will give small content or anything will please the querent. 
for the seventh house generally hath signification for the artist, and then actually a bunch of because then he he mentions the Arabians and Al Kindi, and then a bunch of the other considerations then relate relate to that framework. Um, so the next one is if Saturn's in the ascendant, especially retrograde, the matter of the question seldom or never comes to good. Um, Saturn in the seventh either corrupts the judgment of the astrologer or is a sign that the matter propounded will come from one misfortune to another. Um, Lord of the Ascendant be combust, neither question propounded will take or the current will be regulated. Lord of the seventh misfortunate or in his fall or terms of the unfortunes, the artist shall scarcely give a solid judgment. And um, I was able to trace this one back to because we were both looking for sources, and I found one source for this one in the Centiloquy um, or Centiloquium that was attributed to Ptolemy, but was probably by some 10th century um, Arabic author. Here it is. It's actually number 14. It's pretty early on in that list, and this is from the Ashman translation of Ptolemy, because at the end of it, they threw these um, aphorisms in that were associated with Ptolemy in the medieval period. And the 14th says, the astrologer will be entangled in a labyrinth of error when the seventh house and its lord shall be afflicted. Mm. So on the one on the one hand, it's kind of it's interesting because again it's coming from like a uh, an aphorism itself in the beginning and then Lily incorporates that into his list of aphorisms. Um, but then on the other hand, it's also you know, he was seeing a lot of clients, so it may have been an aphorism that he decided to retain because maybe he did, you know, screw up or something when Saturn was in the seventh house one day or gave a bad judgment. Like everybody has like an off day or um, <laughs> you know, gets gets one wrong every once in a while. And sometimes you go back and look at that chart and see, you know, what happened or what went wrong and, and learn something from it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think there's a little bit. There must be a little bit of empiricism going on with Lily. I think I suspect with some of this stuff as well. But um, yeah, so it's yeah. like a, bal- a balance between. On the one hand, it's interesting for us to trace back some of these rules and find them in earlier authors, especially since Lily mentions like the Arabians and Al Kindi, sort of signaling that he's drawing some of this from earlier sources, and to look at this from a almost purely textual standpoint. But then on the other hand, we also have to realize that as a practicing astrologer uh, for over a decade at that point, for 12 years or something, that Lily also, there was an um, experiential component for him in terms of the things that he decided to emphasize based on whatever must have worked better in practice for him. Yeah, I suspect, I suspect that's right. And that's what some of Sue's work seems to suggest is that he was looking at, just judging by the charts he was taking and like the gap, like gaps between charts and things like that. There's some you can draw some inferences about. Well, why did he avoid taking charts in this hour or something like that? You know, and you can start thinking about questions like that. It might be circumstantial, but it might also be deliberate. So, you know, right. there's some interesting stuff. You can speculate at least that he was looking at the charts and adapting to them and learning from them as he's working. And 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 um, some of the stuff he reports and advises you in the book might be his own sort of learning as well as stuff from 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 old texts. Well well and sometimes one of the things with astrology is sometimes even if you see something like that, you still have to do it or you still have to try. Like I don't think you yeah. most astrologers can or always have the luxury of just like walking away from a question if you think there might be a problem and that that comes up nowhere else more frequently than in electional astrology as an astrologer when you're trying to do things and you sometimes just have to work with the best 
that you can, or you see that you have to launch something under a not great electional chart, and then you just you still have to do it. You just do the best you can. And I'm sure there's many charts where Lily still went ahead and interpreted the chart, even if he was aware that there could be a potential problem going into it. Hmm. Yeah. But yeah. That's right. Like maybe maybe that's just something that's supposed to warn you in terms of trying to be on your toes, not to make a mistake or to do better or be careful if it's something that's related to you as an astrologer, your performance or something. Yeah, I think that's right. It's almost like a little warning or something like, uh, you know, be careful with this one or um, take your time with this one. Perhaps maybe maybe you know I don't want to sort of read too much into it, but if it's Saturn, perhaps you know you want to sort of go slowly and be careful, things like that. Um, yeah, double check that you got the right time, that you got the daylight savings or what have you. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's really great. Thank you for finding that source because I was struggling to find the, the a source from the Islamic period for the seventh house affliction being relevant. But that Centiloquium is an interesting text because it it claims to be written by Ptolemy. But yeah, there's some scholarship that's been done that suggests it was actually written by a tenth century um, sort of Islamic author. Um, yeah, because he wrote a commentary on it at the same time or very shortly after that in Arabic. And so then the assumption of the scholars then has been that he actually authored the set of aphorisms that he attributed to Ptolemy and then wrote a commentary on them immediately afterwards. And then those aphorisms, because they were attributed to Ptolemy in Arabic, actually got translated back into Greek. In, by the Byzantine astrologers who thought they had actually preserved a genuine work of Ptolemy, and then it got sort of passed on from there. Yeah, it's fascinating history that that document. Um, but you know that the the fact that there's that rule in there um, is evidence that 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 rule was observed by astrologers in the Islamic sort of tradition, if you like, of Horary, at least at, by the time that it was written. So um that's so that's evidence enough for me that th- that they were looking at things like this back then they were looking at the 7th house and one and saying oh okay maybe i'm in trouble if i answer this question or or they're looking at the 1st house and seeing that it's afflicted and going oh this guy doesn't have a hope in hell <laughs> there's no way i'm like i don't even want to answer this question for him because it's not going to go well um that kind of thing yeah um so what are you tried to trace some of the other sources of the different considerations um, what did you find? Like the first few we know are from Benati with the the hour matching, like the ascendant, the ruler of the ascendant, as well as the earlier late degrees rising. Um, that's from Benati. Let's take a look at, let's see, what are the other ones in, in order? So after that, it's like the moon in later degrees of the sign. And some say when she's in the Via Combusta, that's kind of like a generic thing that lots of authors talk about to some extent, right? Or who was that? Yeah. Yeah, that's. I think that comes from Sol, but ultimately, it's it's old. It goes back to Dorotheus and his list of afflictions of the moon. Really, I think this is just standard afflictions of the moon. You know, if um if the moon's in late degrees, it's in the terms of the in you know the malefics. Um, Sol actually mentions the reason I think Sol is because he he specifically mentions Gemini in 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 his list of defects of the moon. He says, you know, be careful when the moon's um, in the late, later degrees of the signs, you know, in the, at the end of the, the signs, especially when it's in Gemini. And then he kind of goes on. And so that sort of specific mention of Gemini, like in particular, to be careful of. And I think he's, he says it's because it's the 12th from Cancer. Okay. The 12th from its domicile. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's why I think that's probably coming from, from Sol. 
So, and then the next one is the void of course one, and then he gives the exception of that it performs in Taurus, Cancer, Sagittarius, or Pisces as a mitigation for void of course. And I'm pretty sure that's Bonatti, right? Like Bonatti lists that mitigation. Yeah, that's right. So I think he's getting. I think I think Lily's getting that from from Bonatti. And again, that's another old piece of lore. I mean, you've done a podcast on the the void of course moon and how old that you know that is as a relevant consideration is. So. This is traditional kind of general things to be mindful of, I think. Okay, and then the other, the next one is the one we were just talking about, the cusp of the seventh house afflicted, or the lord of the seventh house in some way afflicted. Um, so that's that, and then um, Saturn in the ascendant, especially retrograde. Is that one that you traced? Yeah, uh, let me just look that one up. So that's uh, let me see here. That one, I think, yeah. So there's a, there's a chapter in Al Kindi where he says, it's it's chapter four, which is called on on the beginning of affairs, I think, and 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 it sort of seems to be a list of electional rules, but also possibly some horary stuff as well mixed in. Mm-hmm. And one of them he says, um, beware lest the Lord of the Ascendant or the Quesited Matter appear retrograde, for even though all things may be promised as being able to come about, the affecting of the matter will follow after much labor and long desperation with many adverse obstacles. So it's not talking about Saturn being there, but it's saying that an affliction to the ruler of the Ascendant, and specifically if the ruler of the Ascendant is retrograde, that could be a problem. And then there's also a, a line in, in Sol where he he talks about um, he talks about uh, uh, that if the, if the significator of the querent is afflicted, is like, you know, combust or retrograde or cadent or something, some other problem with it, then it sort of shows that the the querent is unfortunate or prone to misfortune, you know, and unlikely to sort of succeed. I think the implication is that they're unlikely to succeed at them in the uh, endeavor. Um, so again, they don't exactly say Saturn, but but it's pointing to like issues with the first house as being, you know, something that you want to look at um, perhaps early in the in the consultation, you know. Um, Perhaps beforehand, hard to say, but at least early on, you want to take a good look at that and, and consider, you know, if those if those afflictions are going to be a, a major problem. Yeah, I mean, let me check my list and see if I had found a source because I'm I'm surprised, especially because he sig- signals that he he mentions Al Kindi by name and he mentions the quote unquote like Arabian astrologers mm. that there's not like a more obvious. Um, especially with these first two of like Saturn in the first or Saturn in the seventh, yes, um, yeah, as like a source that we can point to that he's drawing on because we we sort of expect at this point that these are certainly the ones that he's signaling that he's getting from somebody else. That's right. Um, let me see. Yeah, I haven't I haven't been able to find an exact. I'd I'd be interested to see if you can find something. I was wondering whether it might be in like Al Rajal or something. I haven't read. Uh, there's not an English translation available of. Of Al Rajal, but that was a really important and influential text for the Europeans, so that it might be in there. But um, I agree, like those quotes I just read are not really that. Then it's not the same thing. It's sort of conceptually similar, I guess, but it's not. Yeah. It's not. This, it's not the exact sort of quote that he's. It's not the text he's drawing on. I mean, um, it shows at least that the it's that the rule that Lily gives in the considerations is conceptually consistent with the early tradition and how they're treating like the first house and the seventh house in horary questions. Yeah. So that 
either he was drawing on some other rule that came from that tradition that would have interpreted Saturn in the first or the seventh that way, and that would make totally total sense conceptually, or alternatively, Lily himself drawing on that conceptual tradition himself could have made that extension that Saturn in the seventh or the first could indicate those things. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't look like I do. I just have the note, which is the same that note you had about Elkindi saying something about the seventh house representing doctors in chapter 31 of the 40 chapters, which just shows again more of the conceptual consistency of the seventh house being treated in that way. Yeah, it's a similar thing to what we said earlier about the first being the first and seventh being relevant in any kind of interaction or contractual sort of exchange of some sort. So the doctor comes to help you so that you're sort of purchasing their services in some way. Mm. So they're the seventh house and you're the first house in that kind of- And similarly to when you go to visit a ho- an astrologer, they would be the seventh house because you're going to visit them and get their services. Right. Maybe that's- I wonder if it was from one of those. I didn't finish looking through because I found, I found one of these was in um, one of the Renaissance astrologers. It wasn't just that aphorism, wasn't just in um, the Pseudo-Ptolemy uh, aphorisms, but also it got repeated by like Claude Dario, and I meant to look and see if any of these other ones were in his text as well, but I haven't got a chance uh, to yet. Yeah, I must. I haven't gone and looked at the Renaissance texts. I've got. I've been focusing a lot on the earlier things, but it'd be interesting to see where how, where they show up um, and yeah. how they're reported. That um, in the, the book of the nine judges as well. Um, mm. I didn't finish going through all of that. Had you searched through that for any of these? Yeah, I did actually. I found some interesting things in there actually. So there's, uh, there's no. Okay, I actually I'll I'll go down to where I've got my notes for it. There's no real. The only I only Ooh. found the last one in the book of the nine judges, the twelfth one of benefics and malefics being equal, but that's because it was coming from. Masha Allah and it was in Benadi and it seems like it's in a lot of people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yeah, in 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 the book of Nine Judges, uh, there's a quote from Umar, and Umar reports. He, I think he's building on Masha Allah. He's just basically expanding on Masha Allah's on hidden things, and he report and he discusses that the issue of having fi- a finely balanced chart with both malefics and benefics kind of equally balanced. Um, uh, the thing, the only thing to mention in other than that, because there's not many other really real rules like you see in Lily in 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 Nine Judges. Um, there's just more sort of that advice and sort of you know make sure you got the right time kind of advice. Um, but he does, Masha Allah does at one point make a statement that Ben Dykes interpreted as possibly indicating that the early authors believed that you could tell whether someone was misleading you by looking at the chart. Which is interesting conceptually because we know that the concept of being of a radical chart or like, you know, the, the method of finding out whether a chart is radical of using the the rising sign and the planetary hour pro- probably comes from Bonardi. But what this quote from Masha Allah in, in Nine Judges shows is that there may have been a earlier tradition or an earlier concept of being able to do something similar, you know, of being able to look at a chart and by looking at certain indications, tell whether someone is um, coming to you for the wrong reason or withholding information from you. So I wonder if that's worth me reading out or sharing, um, because it's interesting to this whole issue of, you know, 
the primary kind of, I think, reason why you get into considerations before judgment is to is because of this anxiety about, can I trust this person? Are they telling me the truth? That kind of thing. And, and this is sort of an early kind of author speaking on that and sort of talking about how you might be able to overcome that, you know? Um, yeah, go ahead if you want to. Yeah, so so it's in um, this section of the Nine Judges. It's right at the start, and it's from a book by Masha Arlo. It's not on reception. It's some other horary texts that he wrote, and it's preserved in, in Nine Judges. Um, but it says, uh, But if anyone made a question in order to test the astrologer or in order to scoff, I think that means to sort of just mess around, you know, um, the effect and end of the affair in no way leaves the proper intention untouched. And that's sort of difficult Latin. And Dykes admits that that's a sort of a tortured sentence in Latin. And it's sort of, he's reading through the translator. Right. This particular translator liked really flowery sentences and makes things difficult to understand. But when he says, if it, okay, so just to say that again, if anyone made a question in order to test the astrologer or in order to scoff, the effect and end of the affair in no way leaves the proper intention untouched. And so what you can take from that perhaps is that proper intention, it depends what proper intention means, but one way that you can interpret that, which Dykes notes, is that it could mean that the chart will tell you, um, the, the, the chart will be affected by that, by the fact that the querent is scoffing or or, or or coming to test you, the chart will sort of somehow be will respond to that intention to laugh at you or that intention to to, to test you in some way, and that you might be able to sort of see that. And elsewhere in one of his other books, um, in, in one of Dykes's books, sorry, Ben Dykes, um, uh, the Search for the Heart, mm-hmm. which is about thought interpretation, he quotes that same passage from Masha Allah that I just read, and he says, um. That maybe what this Herman does, or or oh ben sorry, does. Ben Ben does in his introduction. In sorry, introduction. Ben's introduction okay. to sorry, yes, in his introduction to the search of the heart, Ben mm-hmm. quotes that, and he says that maybe what that's pointing to is using thought interpretation to figure this out. So so Bernati's solution to this is to check the planetary hour and check the rising sign and. And compare the two. And and Ben Dykes notes that in, in search. He says, this is Bernardi's approach mm-hmm. and Lily's approach to figuring out this problem. But um, it seems like the older authors might have just used the thought interpretation method, you know, of, of finding the significator of thought of what the querents thinking about, what they want to know about, or what's on their mind, what's the pressing issue, etc. And then comparing that to sort of what they're saying, <laughs> you know, and and um, and and sussing out that way whether they're uh, trying to mock you or test you in some way. Yeah, I mean that makes total sense, and I think that's it, and that is the core of the considerations before judgment is that there was an early pre. Well, one just that they had established, and by this point in the astrological tradition. The amazing and, and magical thing had been established about Hori, which is that the chart cast for the moment of the question and the exchange of a question between two parties, between the, the client and the astrologer, that if the astrologer cast a question for that moment, it would describe what the person was thinking and what they were asking about and what the focus of the client was. In that chart, just in the same way that the chart we showed of Lisa's Hori question at the very beginning of this 
show um, you casting that chart for when you received the question showed that she was thinking about her job and her health. And the ruler of the ascendant, the planet that represented her in the chart, was in the sixth house, which is the place of work and health. So the astrologer, the Hori astrologers in the Hori tradition had established this really magical and weird thing that when you cast a chart for the exchange of the question, it will actually describe what the person is asking and what they're thinking about, especially if it's a important question. But what they also must have noticed is that sometimes when the person was approaching them and didn't have a good intentions, the chart also sometimes indicated that, that there was something weird about the intentions of this person, or there were other related things related to the consultation and what would come of it that could be seen in the chart. And they came up enough that, that the astrologers sometimes would collect their own observations about what happened in those instances. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a primary way that you can kind of check the, the chart's accuracy in some ways is by saying, well, does this line up with the situation as it's described to me? Um, I know that Lily also did this thing, which is a little bit connected, where he would look at the rising sign and then see if the querent's description matched the rising sign and they looked like the rising sign and they sort of, and that the chart sort of, you know, and he would look at like marks and scars and these sorts of, it, it sounds funny. You know, you wonder why he's doing that. I think part of it is to impress, probably to show the querent, look, the chart matches your description. So astrology works, but also potentially he might be just trying to check that it's the right. That you know, if it lines up with the way the person looks and stuff, that makes him feel more confident about the chart. You know, I guess you could say that. And that's yeah, another it go- way. It goes of back of- to the question of radicality of of that actually being a relevant thing, and and radicality being a relevant consideration for Lily and for other earlier astrologers potentially. That because there, there's like a fundamental thing that sometimes maybe we get away from in in modern times and just assuming because Hori has been around so much, or especially Hori astrologers who use it so frequently take it for granted that it works, but it's still a weird thing that you're casting a chart for the moment of a question and that it's that it works at all, that it either describes what the person is asking about or describes, you know, even more so, even less, the um, outcome of the question is weird and shouldn't be true, but for some reason it is. Um, but there might be situations where for different reasons, maybe the chart doesn't always reflect um, the situation properly if the question or the querent wasn't basing it on like a true intention or something. Like, and that's the part where I think we have an issue with this with the modern approach to Hori being more um, permissible about just whatever question is um, in some of the ancient authors, they may have treated some questions as not being as valid or not being as um, rooted in a genuine intention on the part of the querent as other questions that clearly were. And that's a whole discussion that's something we, we should have as Hori astrologers, but they're just kind of hard to have sometimes because different people have different takes on that in terms of you know how um, are there valid Hori questions versus like not valid valid Hori questions or different things like that? Mm, mm. Yeah, I think that's right. This is a really good point, and and I think Sol kind of picks up on this a little bit. This point of like the chart should reflect the situation, and that's a way of sort of understanding whether the you're on the right track in on questions where he says he talks about you know that the chart really should reflect the the state of the of the querent. He talks about that very issue, you know. 
um, uh, where he says, you know, um, if someone to whom the good fortune of the Lord of his ascendant and the moon corresponds is made fortunate, and one to whom their misfortune corresponds is made unfortunate. And it's and 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 then there's this sentence where he says, and it is that no one asks in a situation of the misfortune of the indicator, that is the moon and the Lord of the ascendant at the hour of the question, unless he is unfortunate, just a distressed man or a man whom misfortune ought to strike. And likewise, good fortune, one does not ask in that situation unless it is a fortunate man or a man whom good fortune ought to affect. So, so you know, he's really just talking about that that that, that striking phenomenon. And it does strike you. I think every time I cast a chart and the querent says, you know, I'm really concerned about work, and then you see the pl- the planets in the tenth house or something like that, and you go, oh, cool, you know, um, or or they say, you know, I'm really worried about my mother, and then you, the moon is like combust or something right so the charts accurately reflecting the question and what they're asking about yeah yeah and so i think that's a natural instinct you have as a horary astrologer i've certainly noticed it just in my practice of just doing that like when you see that it strikes you and you're like ah good yeah and i think that's perhaps what sol is talking about in that passage is being mindful of those factors it should line up you know it, it, it should line up and then Masha Allah said with that statement that if it doesn't line up then you you can sort of know <laughs> yeah, that there's uh, that there's something off because it just has to do with this idea of like we call it radical, but it comes from radix, and then a lot of people talk about how that means root, um, but it also that it's that the chart is rooted, but also radix can mean like foundation that it has a strong foundation as opposed to like having a weak foundation or having no foundation. And I think this is important because this also comes up in electional, but it's not often connected, but. They also say that you know the electional chart needs to be rooted in an earlier chart, like the natal chart, ideally, because um, if you have like a good electional chart, but and it's a good like standalone electional chart, but it doesn't match up very well with the birth chart of the individual involved, um, which is the underlying like foundational chart, then the election may not be successful for that person because it doesn't have a strong foundation in the natal chart. Um, I think we we see a similar thing going on here with the horary, which is sometimes they're looking for because the horary question is otherwise such an impermanent and uh, almost like elusive thing that you're casting a chart for a question, which is not really like a material thing. The closest material thing you can get is the you know exchange between the astrologer and the client, like sitting down together and meeting or receiving a letter as the astrologer. Um, they're looking for reasons that are showing tangible signs that this is like a, a question that's rooted in something um, deeper than just the question itself somehow, or, or rooted in reality. And I think that's what the early and late degree rising thing is. When Lily mentions those exceptions, is he says these are like things to watch out for that may indicate that the horary question is not very well rooted, is not radical. Um, but then he says, with the early degree rising, like you said, he says, unless the querent is very young mm. and his corporature complexion and moles or scars of his body agree with the quality of the sign ascending. So he's saying this could indicate the chart's not rooted well if the ascendant is really early, unless the person's really young, because then the chart is actually describing somebody who's very young because the ascendant is early, versus if the ascendant is very late. Then it may not be very rooted, and then he says again, um, 
does he say that? No, I guess he doesn't say that. He says unless he and he gives other things, but oh, oh no, he does say that. He says unless like they have the exact age. Um, doesn't he say that at, at this point, or am I not seeing it? Oh yeah, except the yeah. current be yeah. in years corresponding to the number of degrees ascending. So he says this is like something if 27, 28, or 29 degrees are rising that may indicate you know, that it's not a rooted question and that there's an issue somehow unless the person just happens to be that exact same age, in which case there's a clear like uh, concrete correspondence between the person and their like physical entity and reality versus this chart that's been cast for the moment of a question. Yeah. And these are some of the methods that you use to sort out is this person like to be frank like are they bullshitting me or are they trying to like you know like mess me around or waste my time kind of thing because if it because if if, if I assume what you'd say is well if the chart doesn't look like the question that's been asked or if the ascendant in Lily's method if the ascendant doesn't look much like if the person doesn't match the description that you'd expect they would look like based on the chart then you might wonder well why are they come to me? Like, you know, are they actually, is this a nothing chart? I guess what you'd say is that like a chart that's cast for an earnest question with its important will look like the question. I guess that's the theory, right? And so right. if it doesn't look like the question, then right. it's almost a nothing chart. It's just like the chart of the transits at that time and it won't have any meaningful description, descriptive value. Yeah, because because ultimately you want as the astrologer, you want to make sure it does have descriptive value and your prediction can be correct if you know that this is a chart that has a strong foundation to from which to make a prediction. But if it doesn't have a strong foundation for some reason, it may not be a strong foundation from which to make a prediction. There may be something amiss, whatever that means, and it may mean different things. Yeah, that's right. And I think what's really exciting is 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 Ben Dykes' suggestion that in the past, in the early tradition, with when Masha Allah and Sol and these guys were actually practicing, that they might have used the thought interpretation methods to do this. That you know that this is the approach they took, and I think that might explain. I mean, and I have some other thoughts on this, and not to get too excited, Chris, but some recent comments that were made on the podcast you recorded with Professor Alomi about um, Arabic Islamic astrology and and and, and Queen Boran. Um, he talks about astrologers being tested, and that, and and he mentions a book by Al Kabisi, which I was aware of, but didn't think too deeply about. That actually gives some rules for how you test astrologers and sort of what things they ought to know, and and these stories about astrologers being sort of tested by the caliph to like, what am I holding behind my back and things like that. Right. And thought interpretation might have been useful for for not only for determining whether someone is, um. If someone's a, a scoffer, as Nasha Allah says, or is like a skeptic or something, but it might be ha handy to also deal with people who are trying to test you and ask you these sorts of questions like, well, what am I thinking of right now? Or what am I holding behind my back? Or, you know, what did I eat for breakfast? This sort of, I don't know, but that's those sorts of questions that thought interpret, because thought interpretation rules always seemed a bit, I'm not sure what the, the practical use of them is in the modern world, but when you start thinking about some of the issues that these historical astrologers were facing and, and, and combined with this anxiety about, is this person lying to me or deceiving me in some way, I think it becomes clear what these rules were used for, potentially. You know? Yeah, definitely. And I think the existence of, of what Ben calls thought interpretation, and I've always called like consultation charts or the consultation chart framework, mm. that the greater 
prominence of that during the late Hellenistic and early medieval tradition um, is really an, an important piece here and is probably where some of these rules come from. And then because a lot of that just got folded into a lot of the thought interpretation stuff just got folded into the horary tradition because horary, it's like thought interpretation is probably the 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 earlier application, which is just casting a inception chart for the beginning of a consultation, and then the chart itself will describe how the consultation will go and what the what the client wants to focus on and what they're thinking about. But then horary is this. What what I think is a somewhat later development, where they took it a step further and they started trying to to say not just w- once they had established that they could describe what the person was thinking about, they then took it a step further to try to predict what the outcome of those thoughts would be and what the outcome of the circumstances would be that the person was concerned about at the time, and they found that they could actually do that by paying attention to. Things like the applying aspects and applying significators and rulers of houses and things like that, and that's you know basically the birth of horary by at least the eighth century with authors like Masha Allah and Saul, where we get that more dynamic approach to horary all of a sudden that's involving things like transfer of light and collection and different ways of rulers connecting and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah, I think that that I think that's right. It's 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 important this material, this thought interpretation material to understanding all of this. And I think that's <clears throat> the reason why perhaps, because when I was looking at these earlier statements, I was looking really closely at these old texts, trying to find the same sorts of rules that we see in Bonatti and Lily, like if it's a late degree rising, then be careful. Or if the planetary hour doesn't match the ascendant, then you know be careful. And I couldn't find anything like that. But I think the answer is the reason why they don't have those rules set out in that way is because they weren't using that kind of approach. They were using the thought, they were probably, it seems, at least Ben speculates that they were using the thought interpretation or the consultation chart as a way of getting into the querent's head and trying to understand what they were thinking about in, in a situation where they either were one, like maybe the astrologer was concerned they might be a skeptic, that the, this, that the test, the person coming to them might be a skeptic or might be there to laugh at them or make fun of them or something like that. Or in a scenario where, you know, they're being formally tested, or someone's come to them and said, "I'll pay you money, but first let me see what you can do," like kind of situation. Um, and that might be the reason why, yeah, you don't see the sort of formulaic rules so much in the older texts, is because they kind of had a different approach. And then in the European tradition, they perhaps didn't pick up on that, and so they, so you see, Bonardi and Lily sort of using these these different or new techniques like. Like the rat, like looking for the radical chart based on the the planetary hour and the rising sign, mm, right? Let's see what else. Like thought interpretation, consultation. There's something I was gonna say about um, the idea. Of, oh yeah, one of the there there is like I've thought about this a lot about like consultation charts and what the practical usages of that aside from just trying to weed out. Um, skeptics or people that have negative intentions. And one of the things that's helpful about it, especially in a horary context, uh, is helping to clarify what the client is focused on and what they actually, what their primary concern is. Because sometimes this is like a famous thing that horary astrologers that, that Lee mentions at one point, which is this idea of like negotiating the question and actually finding out what the querent is actually asking about. Because Sometimes the 
client, let's say a client for a natal consultation, even, but also sometimes a horary client, um, they may not always know exactly how to ask what their what their question is, or they may phrase it in a way that initially makes you, the astrologer, think they're asking about one thing, but in reality they're asking about something else for whatever reason. And sometimes the consultation chart or the thought interpretation or looking at the chart in that sense can help the astrologer to get right to the heart of the matter. Um, and I think that's kind of that may have been why, or I always speculated that's why, like in Ben's translation, it was called the search of the heart, because you're trying to get to the the heart of the matter of what the client, what is on their mind and what their central concern is. Yeah, I think that must be a piece as well. I think it, it can't just be to be used for skeptics. I don't think that's the I think you're right. That's not the full purpose. I think the original purpose is probably, as you said. It's probably to help narrow down and focus on a particular topic. And elsewhere in the in the early horary texts, you see statements about the concerns, like cons- being concerned about making sure that the querent. They use words like reduce, reducing down to the question. You know, like so. It seems like there is a process going on of of discussion with the the astrologer, trying to get to the to make them state something simple. Like in in Masha Allah's on on hidden things, which is about thought interpretation he says like the four ways that astrologers can err and one of them is that if the questioner did not know how to ask you know and 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 so like helping the the question helping the querent to ask a, a a question that's simple and makes sense you know and is confined um and then there's also other material in the early texts where they talk about making make sure that once they've asked the question they don't add more things in so once you've started the session you know, you've, you've sorted out what the question is, you've done the consultation chart or whatever, and you figured out what the, what the question is going to be, and then you've started looking to answer it, the querent might start saying, oh, what about this? What about that? And you've got to say, no, we're not looking at that. We're just focusing on the question that we've already kind of sorted out. So this concern with reducing it down to one thing, keeping it simple, keeping it straightforward, you can see that they're really interested in that. And I think you're, I think you're right. I think that must be one of the the primary purposes of the consultation chart or the thought interpretation method is to, if if the querent needs help, perhaps if if they aren't certain what they what they want to know, um, if they have a few different topics on their mind, like there's an area, there's an, a passage in, is it in Seoul or where is it? Um, here, no, it's in Mashallah in the Nine Judges. He says um, this is really relevant actually to the, what we're talking about right now. In, in Nine Judges, Masha Allah says, um, the manner of asking is that there be a question appearing simple and absolute, so that something not asked is in no way mixed in with things already asked. So if there were someone asking about marriage, he should submit a question once more about a matter he had contrived at the very last before he expects a response. So he's kind of saying, don't let people add new questions in, but he's also emphasizing like that it's really important that the question be as he says simple and absolute and that nothing else is mixed in with it um so i think that's if you're coming to like some people might come to me today with three or four different problems in their life like they might be unfortunate enough to have like several difficult things going on in their life and they might be not be know which one to ask about you know right and so in that situation like i can look at the consultation chart perhaps just hypothetically, I, I could do that and then go, okay, well, it looks like your significator is in like the sixth house, for example. So maybe health is more of a pressing concern for you or something. So really, it's just a really simple example like that. 
and that helps narrow down the, the issue. They had more complex ways of doing it using like victors and 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 like dodecatomoria and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. you know, the the idea of it is simple. The idea is just simply to like help them narrow down what they want to know. You know, or what 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 are we here for today? Yeah, and I mean there is a like impressiveness factor that if you can state the focus of the client's thoughts to them and and their main focus before they've hardly even said anything to you as a complete stranger that would instill a certain amount of like you know not just surprise but like reverence and seriousness in what you're doing there at that point which might be helpful in terms of then you know acting as their advisor or having them take the entire exchange seriously. Um, so there's like that factor. And then additionally, Sue and I mentioned, I think in passing, like the protective function or protective feature that the considerations would have in terms of the astrologer knowing what they're getting into and being able to protect themselves if there's anything about this consultation that they need to know about um, that could be drawbacks or problematic uh, for them in some way. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, really all really good points. Yeah, I think there's a protect the protective factor needs to be considered as well. I think there's two good points there. One is about impressing the client, mm-hmm. and then the other part is about protecting yourself. I'll speak a little bit on both, hopefully, not to get too sidetracked. But impressing the client, I think, seems to be another important role of the thought interpretation material. And I think, especially when you're in a scenario like today, we when I take a question, I get paid up front, I take the payment, and then I answer the question. So in that scenario, the querent really has no incentive to withhold things from me. They're financially committed already. So they they will you would assume help me to they would not withhold things from me. They would not try and mess with me or test me necessarily, you know? They might they might like not state the question properly. They might like sort of ask one thing when they mean another or not or sort of garble it, but they won't like try and deliberately withhold things necessarily. I think that would be weird, but in the you know in the old days they might someone might have said okay well i want to hire you to do this to do some work for me but first of all tell me what i want to know right you know and fold their yeah. arms and sort of you know. and then you as the astrologer has to sit down and, and so you cast the chart and you go well i think you want to know about your your wife or something like that you look at the, you know maybe that and they're like wow okay you're hired kind of thing that that is a realistic scenario and i think i'm thinking of this also of the stereotypes of the gypsy fortune teller kind of that that kind of complex web of stereotypes and um you know um archetypes about fortune telling where you know the first thing that the fortune teller tells you is you're here for the you know this and then your your mind's blown because you, before you that you even told them what you wanted to know they've told you what you want to know you know so it's very impressive like you said yeah well when that that's actually important that that serves an important function because that was something i was reflecting on after doing the episode a couple months ago on a explaining astrology to skeptics where I sat down with a couple of people who were genuinely curious about the subject but but skeptical and had no belief in it or, or reason to think that I wasn't just a crazy person and I we did that 2 hour discussion and it went re- really well I mean I thought I did a good job and most of the listeners thought I did a good enough job but it wasn't until the end of the the Actual discussion after like two hours that I thought to ask them for their birth data, and one of them um, declined, and the other, you know, presented it. But I, I didn't feel like it was appropriate at that point to just like read this person's chart as if it was a, par- a parlor trick, because I, I tend to think that's a pretty serious 
thing that you should do carefully and, and not um, mess up or anything like that. But then I realized afterwards that they didn't end up walking away from that discussion. Well, they well they walked away from it being impressed that I wasn't a purely crazy person in terms of being able to almost sort of explain a cosmological vision for how astrology could maybe hypothetically work. They otherwise didn't walk away from it thinking that it actually worked in any other real sense and therefore had no reason to think that it was a legitimate thing and therefore somewhat to my disappointment sadly in their in their follow-up podcast I was kind of disappointed that they still seemed pretty dismissive of it that they were just like it, it just can't work and and we're kind of done with our investigations and going to move on and I realized that the only opportunity I could have had at that moment to change their opinions truly would have been by making a statement with astrology that I shouldn't have been able to make um, about their life or about something that was going on with them at that time. And that, that's the only matter manner of proof that would have been compelling enough to change somebody's mind who is truly skeptical about the subject. And we hear like anecdotes about that down through history of like the astrologer who started out as a skeptic but was impressed by something and like reluctantly got dragged into it. But that is potentially what it might take in many cases, or in, in some cases when it comes to somebody who doesn't believe in astrology as a skeptic, and it could have a real value for that reason, something like thought interpretation and being able to say exactly what is on the person's mind. Um, in a way that's going to be conducive and helpful for you as the astrologer, as well as something that you could or, or potentially should do if it's within your power to do. Yeah, I think they call it convin a convincer sometimes in in this sort of world. Is like you you offer them, like Lily says, you know, check their mole, check their moles and scars. You can sort of he gives rules in one point for like, okay. You know, I think if the moon's in a particular house, you can say that the corresponding body part or something has a mole or a scar there. I, I can't remember the exact rule, but it's something pretty simple like that. Okay. Um, and it seems like the idea was that you do that for people when they first sit down with you to sort of impress them, you know, and to sort of convince them that there's something to this. It's powerful. Um, I know that myself, when I first got into Horary, I, I, I had a moment where I found a lost object with it. One of my early charts, and that really impressed me and sort of in inspired me to keep going with studying it. So, yeah, there is a value. I mean, it seems on some level it it seems like cheap or something, or like sh like sort of showing off or something. So I, I get that. I really relate to that, and I that's why I don't do this sort of thing in my own practice. Like I don't, apart from the fact that I don't think my clients need convincing, but you know. Yeah, the, the astrology for astrologers and people that take it seriously—that it's not like a circus act or like a um, a circus trick or something like that—but uh, it is something that we take seriously, so that you don't usually feel like you need to resort to that stuff like that. But that I was—I guess I was just thinking that uh, you know, in certain circumstances or in um, let's say certain different societies, like you know, centuries earlier, maybe there would have been. More of a reason that something like this could have had a useful application, that thought interpretation could have had a useful application on its own outside of horary and before you even get to horary. And that, that actually brings up a really interesting point that I meant to make in the podcast with Sue, but didn't or didn't get a chance to, which is that um, Lily calls 
it for the most part pretty consistently horary questions, and that's actually the full title of this of the fourth branch of astrology is horary questions or questions. And in the Arabic tradition and in the Byzantine Greek tradition, that's also what they called it. They called it questions. And it's funny though in modern times that this got shortened and we kept one of those words, but we just call it horary for short. But um, one of the things in rereading Lily and his horary sections recently that was interesting is that it, he consistently refers to it as questions much more than he refers to it as as horary. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about that as well. Like, and it, it speaks to sort of the real distinctness of the branch from its earlier stuff, yeah. I suppose. Like, like and that was the thought that got me there. Yeah, yeah. And like, so the the. Uh, I think that in Arabic it's masail or something like that. It means yeah, questions or inter- you know like interrogation, something you know right. like a quest- questioning. Um, and in, in Byzantine and Greek, they started calling it in the same period. In the Byzantine Empire, they called it erotasis, which also means like questions or interrogations. Mm, mm. So it is just like there's a, there's a a distinctness to that if compared to like the. I guess the consultation chart or or the electional kind of rules that 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 it kind of came out that it kind of evolved from. Yeah, which was originally they were using the word um, katarke or katarki, which is like inception. So you're casting an inception chart for the the moment that something begins. In this case, the inception of the consultation between the astrologer and the client. Um, although that was also the term that they used interchangeably for, you know, an inception of when a a city was founded or starting. They also used it for electional charts. So katarki was also the term for electional charts up until modern modern times. Mm-hmm. And thinking about all of this, it just reminds me of how like, the transactional nature of astrology has changed, and how in the ancient world, like there would have been more scenarios where you would need to convince or impress someone, or you might need to demonstrate your skills in a way before you get paid in a way that just isn't really true in the modern world, and how that difference in the way we make money and the way we transact um, also changes the way we experience astrology. And sometimes we make assumptions about astrology in the past, perhaps, based on the way we experience it today that may not necessarily reflect the reality. Like I think some of the trouble we've had understanding the thought interpretation material might partly be because of that, that sort of issue of not being able to imagine ourselves in the shoes of someone in Baghdad in the ninth century and what they would have to go through to convince a client to, to pay them money, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think that's it's like a double-edged sword that I've been thinking about and dwelling on a lot recently, which is both the advantages that astrologer that modern practicing astrologers have to studying ancient astrological traditions is that sometimes some of the dynamics that come up that came up in ancient times are very similar to the dynamics that astrologers still experience today and that can sometimes be useful or give astrologers unique insight when they go back and do historical research. Um, because of those similarities, and sometimes a practicing astrologer can see and understand what another practicing astrologer a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago would have been dealing with, or what their thought process was like in a way, because there's similarities today. But then the flip side of that is sometimes, you know, there are blind spots or things that we're taking into us taking assumptions about, or things that we can't see. Yes. Because uh, things are so different, either in the cultural context or either in terms of how the practice of astrology has changed in now the early 21st century, that sometimes um, can limit us or, or act as blind spots or things that can trip us up 
when doing historical investigations like that. So it's kind of it can go both ways. Yeah, that's exactly right. That sort of reminds me of our first our first point really about you know where we started this whole conversation uh, actually, which was what. But, Oh, sorry. Um, just this idea that um, oh dear, I've lost my thread now. But this this notion that there's uh, uh ways that we can sort of project things back into the past and just being careful about, you know, sorting out those. But yeah, being careful about how we sort out what 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 out, what's our perspective versus what's the oh sorry what's the perspective of the the astrologers in the past. Yeah, um, that, that's true, and that makes sense. Yeah. Um. You know what's think- funny is we never we never finished answering Lisa's question or what your answer to Lisa's question <laughs> was, but it was it was affirmative, right? Yeah, that's right. Let me see if I've still I've still got it open here. So um I can share the chart again if you want to round out. Yeah, go ahead. Uh let me do that. Now. I like in- interrupted you in the middle of that, and then we went in a long digression because that like picked up the best, like a great discussion point to enter us into the discussion. But then it was funny because then we just got in that that um that segue or that would acted as a segue and we got stuck on that for that now it's been two hours and now it might be <laughs> oh good to wrap it up by coming back to it yeah let's let's yeah I don't want to leave people hanging so I'll, I'll I'll run through how I read the chart and then we can talk about how it how it went and then leave it at that perhaps yeah so so yeah first of all um I'm just looking at my notes here so um the first thing is that mercury signifies both the job and and Lisa because it rules the tenth house and it also rules the rising sign, so um, that can be challenging to deal with um, because usually what you want is like to see an aspect between the ruler of the rising sign and the ruler of whichever house is relevant to the question. But in this case, it's it's both. The, you know, it, the the same planets rules both houses. So uh, what you do in that scenario is um, well, you look for something. You, you either look for the strength of that planet, you know, and see what happens to it. Mm-hmm. Or you look for an aspect from the moon or something like that. And my teacher, as, as the oh, secondary significator for the quarant, or as the general significator for the the sequence of the Hori chart in general, the moon. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, that's one option is to look to see if the moon connects with it by degree by an aspect, or 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 alternatively, just look at what's happening to that planet and just see well, what does it look good or bad kind of thing. You know, <laughs> that's what Sal kind of instructs in that situation. Um, my teacher Chris. Warnock always said that if he saw that in a chart, he took it as a good indication because it indicates that the the planet and the sorry the the, the querent and the thing thereafter that they're seeking is is linked in some way. Right, there's so, a connection a connection between the two. Yeah, so he says that that's a good indication. So I sort of took that um uh to mean that. Uh, so anyway, uh, it says um uh. And the other, yeah, the other thing is it just makes it makes the job of reading the chart easier in some ways um, because there's less significators to look at, you know. Because then you're just like, what? So what is the ruler of the ascendant applying to, and what is the moon applying to? And if it's applying to good things, then it will be good. If it's applying to bad things, it will not be good. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so I also looked at. Let me see here. Yeah, then I, then I ran through that. The, the, the chart depicts the situation quite literally with Mercury in the sixth combust. Um, then, um, I, yeah, I looked at Mercury and I said, well, it's obviously not in a good condition. It's stuck in a cadent house and it's combust, but on the plus side, it's dignified by triplicity. So it's in an air sign in like a night chart. So it's, it's got Dorothean triplicity dignity. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's also, uh, and it's in, it's in Deccan as well, or it's face. 
So it suggests that Lisa does have some resources in here. Like it's not it's not a completely like desperate sort of scenario. Um, uh, then another good sign was that Mercury's next aspect, apart from with the moon, like it's next aspect with a planet other than the moon, because the moon's always making aspects, <laughs> is is um, a sextile with Jupiter, and Jupiter's angular in the chart in the fourth house in Sagittarius, and that that this is the majority of my judgment came from that aspect, that applying aspect to Jupiter. Right. Um, which will not be interrupted by anything other than the moon. And, and it's the pretty moon, close. It's only like five degrees away. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And Jupiter's really strong in, in, in its domicile. It's in Sagittarius. Um, so that looks really positive. And because the subject of the question was, should I quit my day job and work from home, more or less? That was sort of the subject of the question, you know? Oh, right. Um, so seeing Mercury in an applying aspect with Jupiter the ruler of the fourth house, so positive in in its own domicile. It just looked really positive for moving for like fourth house matters, like moving to the home, you know, focusing on home life and you know orienting yourself towards the home, like the fourth house. And especially because it's it's conjunct, it's like almost exactly conjunct the IC as well, which is really striking. Yeah, that's one of the thing I was noticing is it's actually the most the most angular planet because it's exactly it's not in this chart, which is one interesting thing that we're gonna we're gonna do a podcast on sometime, but not probably today. But you're using whole sign houses with this Hori chart, which is an interesting whole two hour discussion topic, maybe in and of itself. <laughs> but um, yeah. you're also showing the degree of the angles, the degree of the MC and and IC and descendant and and midheaven and which all whole sign, you know, houses, house users still do, and Jupiter happens to be like exactly on the degree of the IC here. Yeah, that's right, exactly. And so, and that just really rams home the point, I guess, that um, that Jupiter is very connected with fourth house themes and you know themes connected with the the IC. So that was just looked very encouraging, I guess. Um, because as I said in the write-up, I said, um, you know, the question boils down to should I stop going to this place to make money and make money at home instead? Um, and so seeing Mercury, and it was um, kind of like applying it was to kind that. of like like what will happen if I do that in a sense as well. Yeah, I think, right. That's right. What will happen to my career and me? Because again, they're linked by being both signified by Mercury. What will happen to my career and to me in the future? And it looks like a very positive move home to the fourth house to the home. So. So that that was like a yeah, and part of it was also like, will I be successful if I quit my day job and and start working, being self-employed and working from home, basically? That's right. Yeah, and the other piece that looks really good um, was, uh, and I'm just is that uh, both the benefic planets are placed in the fourth, and that Venus, so so Jupiter and Venus are both in the fourth, mm-hmm. and that Venus rules the second house of money, and it's placed in the fourth. Um, so that looks really good. And it also rules the ninth house of it, which signifies astrology. So the question was, you know, about focusing more on astrology and, you know, quitting the day job. And, and so having the ruler of the ninth be a positive planet is good, but then also having the ruler of the ninth be in the fourth house, it just symbolically, like it, it, it again, just sort of symbolically fits with the nature of the question, if you like, because there's a positive indication for, for astrology ninth house in, in the fourth. Venus being being placed there, so, um, and it's also interesting with the Jupiter on the IC thing in the fourth sign, and also Venus in the fourth whole sign house. I guess also the fourth quadrant house for that matter. But um, you mentioned earlier, like the idea of the the early early um, 
you know, cathartic rules about the ascendant being the one asking, the seventh being uh, the one receiving, the tenth being the action, and the fourth being the outcome or like the final ending of all of this. And and it being interesting, you just mentioning both benefics being there as a indicator in terms of the the final outcome in some sense. Yeah, that's right. It's it's very positive for like the outcome. Yeah, mm-hmm. the fourth being the sort of the end result of the outcome of the matter. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think the other note I had was that um, uh, where is it? I said the best sign of all is that the moon is in the fourth house, separating from a conjunction with Jupiter and a trine with Mars, and I think it's just separated from that trine with Mars, and is now applying to a conjunction with Venus, the ruler of the second house of money. So that that aspect of the moon just looks really nice. Like, yep. Um, it looks like you'll be getting some money because uh, I basically said uh, the chart does look quite reassuring financially. So, um, yeah. So it's not just it's not just that the primary significator, the ruler of the ascendant, the ruler of the tenth, was applying to a benefic in the fourth, indicating an affirmative outcome uh, in the future or a positive outcome to the question of like what will happen if I quit my job and go solo or become self-employed, but also the secondary significator of the querent in the question was also applying to a benefic. And the second benefic actually happens to be Venus in a night chart who's like even more positive in that that circumstance. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So all of those reasons I said to Lisa that yes, I think the chart looks good. I think you should take the plunge, you know, take the leap of faith and 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 quit the day job. And I think it worked out. So um yeah, I mean, she's doing she's doing great. Uh, I can I can report this is this is what January of 2019. So this is two years ago. So she's um, doing really good and has been really successful. And we're both doing pretty well in terms of our respective careers. But also, it's interesting because her doing that at that time, interestingly, in retrospect, she was working in a library up to that point for most of the past decade as her day job and doing astrology on the side, um, but. She so she quit um, about a year before the pandemic, and that actually ended up being a kind of a big deal because of some of her health stuff in the past. If she had had to like go into a day job on a regular basis or or do some of that stuff, it would have been pretty pretty problematic, um, and she would have had a bad time a year later once twenty twelve or twenty twenty rolled around and the pandemic broke out. So that making that switch at that time, about a year before that, ended up not just being successful, but also somewhat like fortuitous in terms of the timing. Yeah, there you go. So yeah, I'm really glad that I think she came back to me and said and said much the same. Like it's it's funny how things work out, isn't it? Um, yeah, but I was really glad to do that for Lisa, and really really happy to see the the positive outcome. A, a lot of questions I get have a quite a negative looking chart. I'm often telling people no. Or I'm afraid that person doesn't love you, mm-hmm. or or you know the job that you're going for, you're not going to get it. Those kinds of things. So it's really nice to be able to give us some good news. Mm. Yeah, definitely, and especially like a chart like that where it's like overwhelmingly positive with both of the primary significators like applying to benefics. That's a little unique, and and that doesn't happen every day that you get like a a yes with like an exclamation mark after it. That's right. Yeah, I think I know that as much to Lisa at the time, and she was like, "Oh gosh, <laughs> when you're told it's almost like more scary in a way, being told that something looks really good, you know, because then you sort of the pressure's on, you know." Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, that's funny, and that's a nice way to round this out, just because it was one of my favorite 
recent examples of like a horary chart that I've seen um, and and actually witnessing it play out and being aware of. It's hard to convey the um, sense of somewhat of uncertainty and like nervousness and whether this was a good call and um, because that was the other thing was losing and we've talked about this publicly before, but like losing health insurance that she had with her regular day job versus that which was very good versus switching to you know not having that and losing that safety net um, and many things that made it uncertain and and a potentially problematic prospect. Um, yeah, so that's just a good example of horary in practice and how it can work out. And obviously, not all horary charts, as you're saying, are going to work out in that exact way. Um, so you don't want to like set people's expectations too high here. But um, it's a good example of the principles working out in practice. So yeah, thanks for good job answering that one, and thanks for for sharing that. No worries, my pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Were there any considerations in that chart? Maybe we should have checked. I did not <laughs> uh, look to see if there was any considerations before judgment in that one, but I don't recall any some of any of the n- normal ones like Saturn or anything like that offhand. No, I wonder. I mean, I think um, well, the ruler of the seventh is very strong, so I do I do well I do well from this question, which I suppose is, we're talking about oh, yeah, on your right. show now. So you're Ju- you're Jupiter. You're that Jupiter that's on the angle. In, in the fourth, <laughs> fourth eventually, so it's almost like the opposite of Lily's rule, which is the 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 thing about him being worried if you have like malefics in the tenth house and the astrologer not getting any credit for the question. Now we've got the reverse situation where you're you're getting lots of credit for the question for answering <laughs> it correctly. I guess so. Yeah, I didn't thought about that until right now. Actually, that's funny. I think the only other thing would be well, Mercury, the ruler of the first, is combust, but. Um, it is, but it is not a worst case scenario because it has that triplicity and Deccan dignity going for it. I think the old books were more, were concerned with things like that, and they sometimes say that if a planet was, you know, retrograde or combust, even if it was in an applying aspect with the planet you want, it 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 might not work out. But I think because Jupiter is so strong, angular, and do- in domicile, like yeah, even with Mercury struggling, it's going to work out. Yeah, I think the other thing about that is the fact that it's separating that Mercury's. Coming out of the combustion, and even though it's still not there and it has a long way to go, it's at least headed towards Jupiter um, and is headed towards like the other side of that rather than moving into the combustion and moving under the beams of the sun. Um, and I think that relates more to like past medical issues that were like the context of being concerned uh, coming out of that, but then that the future was looking brighter than the past did in some sense. Yeah, that's right. The fact that it was a separating conjunction with the sun is very important, and it shows that yes, those those the worst of it is in the past, and that as you move further and further away from the sun, and and eventually emerge from the beams, that things will get better. And that's actually also relevant because I think if, if if it was Virgo rising, then the sun was the ruler of the twelfth whole sign house. So the sun was actually the ruler of the twelfth, which is like long term. Um, ailments or, or illness and things like that. So that's probably additionally relevant in some way. Yeah, it's it's a very, as Lily would say, a very radical chart. I guess you know it really describes the situation closely. So even though it has that issue with the first house ruler, you would not throw this chart in the bin. You know, you would not. You know, just to talk about axiomatic of applications of the considerations. Right. Uh, you note that you go, okay, well, it looks like Mercury struggling a bit, but let's see what happens, kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. All right, um, cool. Well, that's awesome. Where? What is your website again? You're open. Are you still doing horary consultations? 
Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely taking horary questions and taking natal consultations as well. My books, are pre- my openings are pretty limited in my calendar, but I'm doing uh, birth chart readings as well. So you can find me at oldschoolastrology.com. And I'm also on Twitter um, at oldschoolastro um, and a few other places too, like Instagram and Facebook. I'm not as active on there, but I have I have accounts. Cool. Um, yeah, I love following you on Twitter, and you're always posting a lot of interesting and useful things. And that's how, at least, I think we initially connected, or at least how we first started to interact was f- through Twitter, like a few years ago. That's right. Yeah, I think you reached out to me and said uh, that you liked my you liked my username, which made me really happy. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's always a good opening is having a like clever. Everybody always thinks of much clever like titles and usernames than I do, so I'm always impressed when I see uh, a good one. <laughs> um, so, and uh, whole sign horary, we're going to talk about that at some point because that's, as you and I have talked about a lot, um, that's what the early horary astrologers were doing, like Saul and Masha Allah, is they were casting whole sign charts. And there's no reason, like, people often have this question, like, they ask, they ask me for years, like, can you use whole sign houses with horary? And the answer is, is yes. I mean, there's mm. there's absolutely no reason why you couldn't. Or shouldn't, and you know, uh, some people like to say that. Well, because you know, Lily did whatever quadrant house that that's what we should do, or that horary as a branch in its entirety should always be done in a quadrant framework if that's what astrologers used with horary in that time period. But the problem is that if you have this other group of astrologers in the eighth, and ninth century who are using whole sign houses for horary. Then you've got instances of both. So there's not like a historical precedent either way. You just, it's something you kind of have to figure out on your own and make a decision about. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. And um, I adopted whole sign houses and, and started, you know, using them for horary a few years, a few years ago. And um, it does strike me as funny. I think it's because perhaps people aren't as sort of close to the old, the old medieval texts as, as you or I are, but People come to you and say these sort of dogmatic things like, oh, you have to use quadrant houses for horary, or like, how could you possibly, how could you possibly do horary with, with whole sign houses? And it just strikes me as a, a funny statement because it's just not really, it's, it's ahistorical. Well, I, and I know uh, some whole sign users that use whole sign primarily in like natal, but then switch to quadrant in horary. And that it doesn't make any sense to me because, um, the branches and and soon I talked about this a little bit. There's a lot of interchangeability in the rules between the branches, and even though there's a different focus, and sometimes you're using different rules, or sometimes you have different time frames involved with like a hoary question as opposed to a person's entire life. Like all of the basic principles are the same, and so if you've figured out good approaches to house division that work in one branch of astrology, then they work just as well in another branch, and there's not. I haven't seen a good argument for why there should be different house systems for different branches. It's just something that people accidentally fall into, and and I'd like to, I'd like to see more discussion about that topic. And I, I think I will see more discussion about that topic in the future. Yeah, me too. I also think it's something that needs to be talked about a bit more. I think that's a bit of an assumption people make for some reason about horary that quadrants are somehow necessary. You know. Um, yeah, it's probably worth sort of having a discussion about that at some point because it is. Um, there's a lot to be said, and and looking at the older books, it's clear that there were, a lot of them were using with with whole working with whole sign houses. Um, sure, and I mean that being said, like, 
I mean, people if people want to use quadrant houses for Hori, like go go nuts. Yeah. I mean, that being said, you know, people should do whatever they feel like works better in practice. I guess I was we were just saying this a little bit that that you can and that people like you or I do actually use whole sign houses in Horary and don't see any really major objection or or obstacle to that because the principles are largely the same that you're applying from natal astrology. So there should be no barrier to doing that. Yeah, that's right. I, I haven't seen a good explanation for why you need quadrant house cusps to do horror, I guess. I haven't I don't know what technical benefit. I mean I'm getting I'm getting into the weeds of it now, but right. yeah. It, it's sort of it's just the question as to like, well what are you how does it affect the actual practice of this of the subject? And the answer is not not a great deal. You know, you can use you can do horary with any house system. Yeah, for the most part, in terms of the fundamentals of horary and the primary techniques, which are just establishing significators and rulers of houses, seeing what the ruler of the ascendant and the moon are doing and what they're applying to, and what perfections are or not going to take place between the different rulers of houses. And while that is going to shift, and you're going to have differences between, you know, what houses are ruled by different planets in a quadrant system versus a whole sign system, um, you know, you can still establish house rulers using whole sign houses, and it can be just as effective and just as compelling in, in correctly both describing the situation as well as the outcome as I think quadrant houses are. So it's the same issue that you run into with natal astrology just all over again with horary which is like different astrologers have different approaches that's right yeah i find it's funny how people have a more open minded approach with natal where they'll sometimes go you know you can do what you like with natal but when it comes to horary people tend to be a bit more dogmatic and a bit more rules focused and um, there's this sort of yeah people make very absolute statements about horary in a way that they some are less perhaps less likely to do when it comes to natal like i think most people are sort of happy to live and let live when it comes to house systems in in natal for the most part i mean there are people who are very determined about one particular system over another and so forth but in horary there is yeah you get people saying things like you know or oh, you have to do regia montanus you know or you you have to i i, I just yeah i think that's taking it too far because i don't think there's a good actual technical reason why i think it's more of a a sense people have for some reason that, 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 that that's important. And perhaps there's been some statements made by some contemporary authors or something that is influencing people. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so I don't I want to mm. drag you into another whole two-hour conversation. <laughs> no, but I'm sorry. <laughs> thanks, thanks a lot for joining me today for talking about the considerations. Like I said, I was so I spent a lot of time researching and preparing for that episode with Sue, and I tried to pack a lot into it that um both I felt like I actually packed too much into it in the first two thirds, so that by the time we got the considerations, we didn't dwell on them as much as I wanted to. Uh, but also, and both of us were like like exhausted by the end in the last hour. But um, also, there was just so much more that was worth talking about and saying, and and that I wanted to talk about with somebody. And so, thanks for giving me the opportunity to do this, and also sharing some of your research about tracing the origins and the sources of some of these considerations. I hope you do publish that in like a paper or something at some point. Do you have any plans to, or what was the idea with that? Yeah, I had some vague idea that I might want to publish that at some point, although that it could form part of a book or or, or something, teaching materials or something like that. Yes, I don't want that I don't want that work to go to waste. Sure. Um, I think it's going to be interesting for people, even if you're not interested in medieval astrology, even if you're more of 
just really interested in the Renaissance horror-y stuff, it's still cool to know where this stuff comes from and to see the work that Lily was, the, the books that Lily was reading. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I'd like to do more with that. Um, well, thanks for this. This is such a good discussion. I don't know if I'm going to release this as a casual podcast or a public one because it actually there's a lot of good stuff that would be worth committing to the main podcast if we weren't too flippant and like casual in some of our discussion uh, <laughs> different different points. So I hope if I do release it publicly that I've not annoyed anyone too much. Um, and if it ends up just being a casual, then I hope everybody enjoyed the episode. So uh, thanks for joining me today. Appreciate it. And thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Nadia Habhab, Issa Sabah, Morgan McKinsey, and Jake Otero. For more information about how to become a patron and get access to exclusive subscriber benefits such as early access to new episodes, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Also, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening online May 27th through the 31st, 2021. Find out more information at norwac.net. The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which you can find out more information about at mountainastrologer.com. The Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, which you can find out more information about at honeycomb.co. Also, the Portland School of Astrology, more information at portlandastrology.org. The Astro Gold Astrology app, available for both iPhone and Android, available at astrogold.io. And finally, the primary software program that we use on episodes of the Astrology Podcast is called Solar Fire Astrology Software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can get a 15% discount with the promo code AP15.